Juvenile Justice Summit. I'm Patty Lee, the Managing Attorney of the Public Defender's Office in the Juvenile Division. And there's a couple of housekeeping measures that I wanted to advise you of. We have three exits here, here, and out there. And no food is allowed in the auditorium. There is a cafeteria outside if you need to partake of food or drink. There will be a lunch at 1 o'clock. And in the event of an emergency, and if we have any individuals that are handicapped or in wheelchairs, we will move the wheelchairs through the aisle and around here and around against the left wall. And so if there is a camera person there in the event of an emergency, you will have to lift up your tripod to allow a wheelchair to go through. Okay? So other than that, thank you for coming, and I would love to introduce Jeff Adachi, the Public Defender of San Francisco. Thank you very much, and welcome and good morning to all of you. Thank you for coming to the fourth annual Public Defender's Juvenile Justice Summit. It's hard to believe that this is the fourth annual. We started this event in 2003 as a means and a vehicle for all of us to come together to talk about how we can improve the way in which young people are treated in the juvenile justice system, and also to come together and look at new strategies that we can join on and work on together to improve the juvenile justice system. We have an incredible program for you today. We have three panels of youth, youth advocates, parents, and those who work in the various agencies in the community who have come together to talk about issues that affect all of us in our work and have a lot of impact on the juvenile justice system. I'd like to begin today with a report card on the juvenile justice system. And it starts, I think, on a very somber note. Let's start with the first video, please. Reports of abuse within the California Youth Authority tonight. The California Youth Authority has come under increasing fire following a series of incidents in which young offenders suffered injury or death. Six correctional officers were caught on videotape beating two wards at a CYA facility near Stockton. Almost everybody who knows the CYA agrees it is badly broken. Juvenile crime experts released a series of scathing reports that found state juvenile justice facilities are some of the most violent in the nation. Kids are um, verbally abused, physically abused, sexually abused, mentally abused. Wards, some as young as 12, are often locked in 4 by 8 foot isolation cells for 23 hours a day for months on end. As a result of this isolation, um, mentally ill wards get worse. Wards who are not mentally ill become mentally ill. For the fourth time this year, a young person has died while in the custody of the California Youth Authority. That was my heart, and it was ripped from me. And we just want answers. We just really want answers why. 
several lawsuits have been filed against the California Youth Authority. Well, Senate hearings continue today into alleged abuses at the California Youth Authority. Lawmakers in Sacramento are holding hearings tomorrow to investigate conditions inside the California Youth Authority. California's Youth Authority is like a barbaric, abusive facility. Every American century has its moral struggle. To me, in the new century, it's the mass incarceration of black, Latino, Asian, and poor youth. The governor of California today formally admitted that the state system for dealing with youthful offenders is broken. I mean, it's very clear when you look at uh, the, the various different complaints and the lawsuits and the mistakes that were made in these facilities, California is wrong. Governor Schwarzenegger says the state has now agreed to make major reforms inside the widely criticized youth authority. We call them correctional institutions simply because we want to correct the people that come in there. Over the next couple of months, a reform plan will be developed by the CYA and a panel of experts, and then we will put this plan into action. This is, like I said, not just dialogue, this will be action, because I'm the action governor. There you have it. <laughs> Despite, despite these promises of reform, the Youth Authority is still in crisis. According to a recent two-part article in series done by the San Francisco Chronicle, the California Youth Authority, now known, We're here to say that now known as the Department of Juvenile Justice, is in a worse situation today than it was a few years ago. The California Youth Authority according to a recent report by experts, still suffers from the same problems that the organization suffered from two or three years ago and beyond that. Poor or no, no education, 22-hour lockdowns, inadequate mental health and health care, and increasing violence. In the Public Defender's Office in 2004, we called for a moratorium on sending our young people to the California Youth Authority in San Francisco because of these conditions. Since that time, we have resisted and fought every commitment to the California Youth Authority. I'm proud to announce that last year, out of the 1,400 youth that we represented, only one youth was committed to the California Youth Authority. And we were successful in bringing back that youth um, and finding an, another placement uh, for him, uh, despite that commitment. But that's still one youth too many. And it's certainly not true of other, most other counties. Um, I do want to uh, just review with you uh, quickly sort of where we are, uh, both on uh, state and national issues affecting juvenile justice. If we look at juvenile crime rates, they're at their lowest level, <coughs> this is in California, in 40 years. The youth arrest rate for serious felonies has dropped by more than half from 1988 to 2006. Yet you would never know this from looking at the laws and policies that are being passed every day in Sacramento. We still have laws making it uh, mandatory uh, for youth to be sent to the California Youth Authority. We uh, have you know, numerous examples, um, including some which we'll talk about today, of laws uh, which make it easier to commit young people uh, to adult prisons. And this is a practice that we're seeing throughout the United States. In uh, the last 10 years, and this has been pretty much a constant number uh, to today, 
we have approximately 200,000 young people in the United States who have been convicted as adults and are kept in uh, adult state prison uh, facilities, 200,000. Just last week, there was a study uh, that was released by the journal uh, Preventive Medicine that found that uh, youth that are incarcerated uh, in adult prisons are much more likely to commit violent offenses uh, than those uh, who are treated as part of the juvenile system. And so the United States and over 40 states now uh, have statutes, including California, that allow uh, children to be tried as adults and be sentenced as adults that this decision in this country has been disastrous and really spells disaster not only for the youth and the families that are affected, but for the safety of our communities. If we look at the number of juvenile um, offenders who were sent to state prison, there has been a decline. In 1996, now this is um, just over 10 years ago, we had 10,000 youth in the California Youth Authority. Today, the population, this is as, as of last month, has gone down to 2,551. According to a report that was issued last year by outside experts hired by the, the uh, judge who's overseeing the litigation, youth spend long stretches of time doing nothing in the California Youth Authority, and there is abysmal achievement in educational programs in a capitulation to gang culture. This is uh, the uh, former uh, president of the California uh, Probation Officers Association and the chief probation officer of Stanislaus County, Jerry Powers, said, quote, those state facilities are the absolute last place you want to send a kid. The state is the last resort. We do a much better job treating them in the counties. The only place that California is exceeding other states in terms of juvenile justice is the cost of the cost. This is the only area that California is ahead of the curb <laughs> in a major way because the state is now spending, get this, $180,000 per youth that's in the California Youth Authority, the Department of Juvenile Justice. Okay? It's five times the cost of what it costs to house an adult prisoner. And the governor's uh, projection for next year is 260, that's nearly a quarter million dollar per, dollars per youth. You know, that's, that's, that's more than what it would cost to send, uh, you know, somebody to Harvard Law School for, for three years. And next year, the Department of Juvenile Justice budget uh, will be 530 million, which will be the most ever. Uh, even the uh, head of the uh, Senate uh, Public Safety Committee had this to say. Today, I'm very skeptical that they're going to be able to do what they said they would. They are doomed to failure. There is a tremendous lack of concern for getting results. Nothing has happened. Now, this is, again, the head of the Senate Public Safety Committee. Uh, David Steinhardt, the director of the Commonwealth Juvenile Justice Program, who has been following this issue for over 30 years has said, I think it's hopeless. What they are doing is a formula for disaster. It's not working on any front. And again, when we called for the moratorium in 2004, we had high hopes at that time that with the new governor, with this new call for reform, and with the power of the people and the grassroots behind this issue that we would see change, but it hasn't happened. 
Assemblywoman Sally Lieber has introduced a bill, Assembly Bill 1655, which would do what Books Not Bars advocated for uh, in 2003 and 2004 to completely eliminate the Department of Juvenile Justice. And I think that this is a bill that we should definitely get behind because the definition of insanity is to go back again and again and again and expect different results from the Department of Juvenile Justice. Regardless of what they've changed their name to, the result has been the same. The recent report showed that the rehabilitation programs for the most part have yet to be implemented, that 83% of the positions for rehabilitation counselors and the like and teachers at the Department of Juvenile Justice have been unfilled to date. What is the answer? While California's juvenile prisons continue to be plagued with violence, poor rehabilitation, and gang violence, counties have seized on new methods and accelerated the introduction of models that appear to be successful at reducing recidivism rates. And this is something we're going to be talking about today, is how can counties like San Francisco ensure that our young people who are incarcerated get the necessary treatment, training, vocational education, academic ed education that they need and they deserve. Keeping youthful offenders locked up once common is now shunned in all but the most extreme cases. Treatment methods focus on retraining rather than punishment. Law enforcement officials are finding that, in general, the fewer youths they incarcerate while providing treatment, and that's what's key, while providing treatment, the more they enhance public safety. Case in point, take Santa Cruz County. Ten years ago, they had over 65 kids in their uh, juvenile detention lockup. Today, they have fewer than 20. Why is that? Because they have been successful in creating alternative programs which provide true support, not only to youth, but also to their families in every way. And this is something I think that San Francisco uh, can, can learn from. In the Public Defender's Office, we have continued to strive for the highest quality legal representation. Uh, this month actually marks the 40th anniversary of a case called Inri Galt, and that was decided in 1967. In the Galt case, a 15-year-old uh, uh, young boy uh, was accused of making uh, lewd phone calls to uh, his neighbor. Uh, he was not advised of his right to a lawyer before he was interrogated. During his trial, he was not allowed to cross-examine the complaining witness. He was sentenced to six years in uh, a youth facility uh, for, that, uh, for that offense. And the United States Supreme Court, for the first time, extended the rights, uh, the right to a lawyer and the right to an adversarial proceeding, although not a jury trial, uh, to minors. And 40 years um, later, we have to ask, what is the state of legal representation here in San Francisco and around the nation. In our office, we have continued uh, to provide holistic representation to youth. For us, that means working with our staff of social workers, which in turn works with many of the community-based organizations and agencies uh, who do the hard and difficult work of uh, supporting our, our youth, both 
on the inside and on the outside. We've continued to work closely with community-based organizations and youth advocates to ensure that youth are referred to services and that they continue in school despite um, the fact that they have a juvenile case. At the same time, uh, we've continued to work as a strong organizing force within the community. Uh, our organizations uh, uh, that we started, uh, the Bayview Magic, uh, has now extended to the Western Edition with the Western Edition Magic. And these are collaboratives where we work uh, together with community-based agencies to improve outcomes for youth and look at, as a community and as a local neighborhood, how we can pull our efforts together um, to support families and youth. Um, today, we have three panels of youth, experts, advocates, and others who will present to you in three important areas. <clears throat> the first panel is uh, called Arrested Development, Addressing Intervention and Prevention in Our Schools. And this, will, this panel will talk about the fact <clears throat> that 50% of all the juvenile cases that we see, as I said earlier, we have about, 15, uh, about 1,500 youth we represent every year. About half of those cases arise on school grounds. Why are there so many cases that arise at the schools? What is the impact of so-called zero-tolerance policies on uh, our youth? And are we using strategies like mediation, teen court, and conflict resolution as alternatives to incarceration? Or is the first alternative sought calling the Youth Guidance Center? The second panel will discuss gang laws. And since 1989, the legislature passed uh, gang laws, Penal Code Section 186.22. And these laws make it a crime, not only to be a gang member, but to be associated with a criminal street gang. There's also an enhancement which provides for additional punishment if it's shown that the crime that's committed, the underlying crime, is gang related. These crimes are very serious. And we've seen more of these charges filed today than ever before. And so today we're going to talk about what we've seen in terms of how this law is being applied, whether it's being applied disproportionately to kids of color, and what information is important for you to know. Many of you are direct service providers who work with youth every day who are affected by these laws, and what you need to know in order to counsel and advise um, a youth who is labeled as a gang member. At the same time, we are seeing here in San Francisco, as well as in other parts of the country, gang injunctions. A gang injunction is a civil action, not a criminal action. It's usually filed by the city attorney, which seeks an order from the court prohibiting alleged members of a gang from congregating in a certain area. Again, it's important to understand the legal import of these gang injunctions um, if you're working with young people or youth who are either at risk or are labeled as gang members or otherwise may be affected by it. The third afternoon panel, It Takes a Village, focuses on youth-led initiatives. And here we're going to uh, have a, a discussion by youth and youth advocates about programs that not only teach youth leadership, but give youth the opportunity to actually lead initiatives and create um, their own initiatives based on what they believe uh, needs to happen. And these programs 
have enjoyed a tremendous amount of success and popularity among youth and families and represents, I think, in many ways uh, the wave of the future. And I should note that um, you know, we will be taking uh, questions from the audience, uh, comments from the audience uh, later on in the program, and so uh, we look forward to, um, to getting your input uh, and your experiences today as well. We have a, an awards presentation honoring Sue Burrell of the Youth Law Center for her years of advocacy for our youth. Uh, also, we're going to be honoring the Ella Baker Center Books Not Bars, which has raised awareness of the abuses that we have heard about today at the Department of Juvenile Justice. We're also very excited that we're going to be featuring a uh, preview of a, of a new play called The Spot by Jeffrey Greer, of uh, the San Francisco Recovery Theater, who's going to be performing uh, for us. And that play is going to be opening here in San Francisco in June. At this time, I would like to thank um, the many people and volunteers who made this summit uh, possible. In particular, I'd like to acknowledge all of our panelists for coming out and giving their valuable time. I want to thank Patty Lee, who is the managing director of the, uh, and manager of the uh, juvenile unit uh, in the Public Defender's Office. Um, Il Ilona uh, Sullivan, uh, the paralegal uh, who helped organize and plan the summit. Uh, Larry Roberts, who put together the materials um, for the summit. And, and Angela Al-Yang, who helped arrange the food and all the other volunteers. If you are watching the uh, summit at home, you can go to www.sfgov.org backslash pd and download a copy of the uh, program uh, materials. Once again, uh, thank you very much for being here, and we hope you enjoy the summit. Thank you very much for coming, and thank you for such a great turnout. Uh, my name is Roger Chan. I'm a deputy public defender. I've been a public defender in juvenile court for over eight years now, and I currently represent youth who have uh, school disciplinary issues or special education issues uh, who are also within the juvenile probation system. Um, I, just take a, I just want to welcome everyone in the back. If you want to come on in and take a seat, that's fine. Uh, this, I'm really excited about this topic this morning because it's impossible to talk about the youth that we work with without talking about their education. And as Jeff mentioned, the issues at school are one of the major entry points into the juvenile justice system for, uh, for youth. And so this panel is titled Arrested Development, Addressing Intervention and Prevention in the Schools. And this morning we will be discussing the impact of school arrest on students and what are some of the effective methods of intervention to prevent that from happening. We will start by looking at some of the data related to school arrest in San Francisco, and then we will talk about solutions, some of the programs that work, and how uh, you as community members and providers can access these programs. My hope is that through this panel, we can stimulate ongoing discussion about uh, how to bring restorative justice into the schools, as well as um, ways to work together and, and coordinate and utilize our services and create positive solutions and outcomes for our youth and families. Um, I'd like to thank the panel that we have this morning. We have a very esteemed panel, and I'd like to briefly introduce them to you. 
Uh, to my left, this is Jane Kim, who is a member of the San Francisco Board of Education. We have Officer Maris Goldsboro, who's been with the SFPD for six years and is a school resource officer at Balboa High. Next to him is Gina Mobile, a deputy public defender in the juvenile uh, unit uh, here in, in San Francisco. And then we have Jen Gasong, who is the network coordinator for the Asian and Pacific Islander Youth Advocacy Network, easier said as Aon. Um, and next to her is David Moroff, currently the Secure Our Schools Coordinator for the San Francisco Unified School District. And then we have Tony Litwack from Pier Court and Deanna Frierson, uh, a 10th grader at Lincoln who's also an active uh, member of the Pier Court. And I will give a little bit more information about each of them as we go along. Um, by way of brief introduction, in the mid-1980s, there was a spike in the juvenile crime rates that created um, and gave birth to a series of laws that, with the idea that we needed to abandon the soft therapeutic rehabilitative approach in education and um, in treatment of youth in juvenile court in favor of stricter uh, discipline or what, we, what has been called zero tolerance policies. Nationwide laws were passed aimed at reducing school violence and some of these laws resulted in the criminalization of conduct that in the past would have merited a trip to the principal's office and a meeting with the parent. Uh, the impact of these laws uh, has been to push children out of the school system and into the juvenile justice system. Uh, national research suggests that when this happens, these students are less likely to graduate and more likely to end up back in the court system than their peers. Uh, I'd like to start by um, uh, going through the data about school arrest in San Francisco. And first, let me tell you more about Jane Kim. Uh, Jane was elected to the Board of Education in November 2006. She has been a dedicated leader in the community uh, as the Youth Program Director at the Chinatown Community Development Center and has a long-time commitment to advocacy for youth. Um, in our first slide, we have the arrest at school summary. And what you can see is that there were, in the, in the fall semester from August 06 to December 06, that there were a total of 116 arrests. The majority of those uh, arrests occurring where the incident uh, was at school. Only three of them were arrested at school where the incident was not at school. And this is a list, this slide is the list of the most common offenses, the most common reasons why youth were arrested at these schools. Uh, <clears throat> this, is, this is not a total sampling, but th these are the um, most prevalent offenses that occurred. Um, Jane, you provided me with some data to put our San Francisco numbers into contacts with the country. And I'm going to move on to the next slide, and maybe, Jane, you can tell us uh, more about how we fit in. Uh, I just I did want to point out the battery and assaults uh, take the lead. Um, and uh, the threats are a combination of threats against school officials, threats against other students, um, and other uh, type of uh, conduct at school. Uh, in, a, in our next slide, this is red is San Francisco Unified and blue is national. And Jane, maybe you could comment on uh, where we stand. Mm -hmm. um, so if you can see the, the slides behind me, I'm going to try to look in front of me. Um, San Francisco actually has a lower level of, of a lot of incidents um, compared to other districts in California. So when you look at illegal drug use, um, we're a little bit lower than, um, than the national average. Um, our next slide is um, weapons. Um, and physical fighting. Um, SFUC is also lower than the national average. 
Um, and we're also lower on the national average than on violence on school property. I want to clarify, um, actually, the second slide, which said um, assault with deadly weapon. And assault with deadly weapon, many in the crowd may assume that that's um, a gun or a knife. But actually, it's not always that case. And I, and I forgot, actually, specifically in the fall what the deadly weapon was. But it, it wasn't what most... Uh, most people would consider a deadly weapon, but it gets it gets categorized in that category because um, because the wep it, it could be an object that could potentially be used to harm somebody. So I just wanted to be clear about that because a lot of parents were really alarmed when they saw that statistic. Um, um, one of the interesting things, actually, in terms of for SFUSD, is that although we are lower than the national average and also compared to other districts in California in terms of a lot of incidents. Um, where we're also lower for students is in their connection to the school. Um, and, we're, and we are markedly lower than all other districts in terms of students' connectedness to their school, um, in their opportunities for meaningful participation at school, in terms of whether they feel they have high expectations expectations from teachers or other adults, and whether they feel that they have caring relationships with teachers or an adult at that school. And that's something that is something that San Francisco needs to take a note on in terms of how we can address that. So while we have lower incidents, we also have a lower connectedness to the school environment. That um, This was a survey that was taken for ninth and 11th graders um, in 2005. Jane, given the data that we have on the school arrest in San Francisco, what do you see as some of the priorities and major challenges facing the district? And what is the role of restorative justice in, in dealing with those problems? Mm -hmm. So I outlined what I thought were some of the challenges that SFUSD is facing in terms of how we address, in particular, student discipline, which I think is, is, is a first step in, in what some folks call the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, the first challenge that, that schools face is, is a training and a, culture, a cultural obstacle. Um, when you look at curriculum for how we train teachers, we focus very much on academics and curriculum. Um, teachers aren't prepared to come into our schools and, and deal with discipline and to deal with behavioral issues and to deal with the culture that they're coming into or the community that they're going to be serving. Um, that's one of the challenges that we see is, is professional development and also changing culture on how we view student discipline. Um, the second challenge that I see in SFUSD, and we actually have a policy on this, is that um, the, the school board and, and SFUSD requires that schools use the least restrictive means at all times for dealing with student discipline issues. But oftentimes, that's not what we see, and I think some of our panelists will talk about that. Um, it's often the least restrictive means is not the easiest mean, because it actually means that you have to address the harm that the students dealt, um, put in the school. And that's a lot more challenging to do than just suspending the student or expelling the student. And I just want to say that our staff is incredibly, you know, they, they work hard, they're dedicated, but they often feel like they don't have the time to deal with that individual student in the classroom that's causing all the trouble. So um, that's a second challenge that, that we face in the district. Um, the third I kind of address is how do we fix the harm? If we know that all these incidents are happening every year, what can we do to change that behavior in our, in our culture, in the student environment? Um, the, the fourth challenge that I see is, is obviously the inequity in the outcomes of our student discipline. Um, close to um, 40 to 50 percent 
um, of students that are the focus of student discipline and suspension and expulsions are African-American, yet African-Americans make up 10 to 13 percent of SFUSD. Um, and just a little fact that I learned recently is that when our district goes um, to the court to, um, to, um, to articulate our support for why we still need desegregation in our schools, um, we have to show that we still have vestiges of race, racial discrimination in the school district. And one of the data that we use is our, is our student expulsion and suspension rates and how it, dis, it disproportionately affects African-American students. We actually use that data to support that we, need, we still need desegregation um, in SFUSD. Um, and that's, that's something that we need to think about. Um, another challenge, the, um, six, a fifth challenge is coordination. We need to be able to work with the many community-based organizations, with the Public Defender's Office, that, and, and all other city agencies that are working around this issue to make sure that we have a coordinated effort around how we're actually serving our students and our youth in the city. And, and the last is, is the statistic that I brought up earlier, is how do we increase students' connection to their school and their community? Jane, you mentioned um, one trend in expulsion hearings where there is a disproportionate impact on African-American youth. In our next slide, um, I, these are the five mandatory expulsion referrals. When we talk about zero tolerance in the schools, these are the uh, violations for which the school has no discretion uh, in which to expel a student. And they are possessing, selling, or otherwise furnishing a firearm, brandishing a knife at another person, unlawfully selling a controlled substance, committing or attempting to commit a sexual assault, and possession of an explosive. Um, Jane, have you seen any other trends in the expulsion rates, uh, particularly, particularly related to middle school students? Mm -hmm. um, one of, and I think many, many people in the audience already know this, but one of the most alarming statistics is that um, the increase that we're seeing um, expulsions and suspensions is actually in the middle schools. It's not, it's not in the high schools. Um, the overwhelming number of expulsions that I see at the board um, is, is in the middle school. Um, and it's usually um, low-level battery, um, usually just fights, physical fights between students. It could be a student threatening a teacher. Um, the, the third that I probably see most is knife possession, but actually not brandishing of the knife. Um, it's actually um, kids bringing knives to school because they want it for protection going from home to the school with no intention to actually use it inside the school site. Um, and so that's one of the most, um, I think, alarming trends that we're seeing in the school board. And when, once you get to the high school level, the incidents tend to get much more serious but are a lot fewer. Um, and one of the biggest things that we see in the high schools unfortunately is actually is, um, is, is racial incidents um, between um, ethnicities of students, usually fights. And, and these middle school students, they, are they being expelled from school? Yeah. <laughs> and that obviously has an impact on the uh, connectivity that you're talking about. Right, right. Um, so when, one, of the, one of the duties of the school board um, members is that we actually see all the expulsions and we have to approve them um, that got recommended by the school site um, <coughs> after they go through their administrative hearing. And for me personally, it's alarming to me to see the, num the kinds of incidents that we get that we're expelling students for. Um, there are issues that I feel if we were providing the proper resources and the training to the staff that they could easily be dealt with on the school site. Fights, threats to teachers, knife possession are issues, and, and drug possessions are things that I think that we should deal with on site and we should keep that student in the school community. 
Thank you. And what we're, what we're seeing is that um, when the students are being referred for suspension or expulsion or being expelled, these are the same students who are coming through the juvenile court system. And uh, we can move on to the next slide and talk about the, um, uh, more about the arrests that are occurring at school. Um, you can see that from the uh, number arrested at school who were brought to CARC, and I don't know if everyone's familiar with CARC. CARC is a um, community assessment and referral center, which in San Francisco is where uh, youth should be brought pr uh, when first um, arrested by the police rather than being taken to the Youth Guidance Center for detention. And, the, and CARC um, is the place where the, uh, where the student can uh, receive an intervention without it turning into um, a formal intervention, which services can be linked up and, and with an emphasis on the aid assessment, the people at CARC can figure out what programs are needed. Um, but what we see is that out of the total number of arrests from the same reporting period, only 38 were taken, only 38 of the arrests at school, were, uh, those students were taken to CART, which is about 32.75% of the number of school arrests from the fall semester. Uh, 17 of those arrests that were taken to CART were from the middle schools and 21 for, were from the high schools. Um, but what I'd like to do now is introduce to you again Officer Maris Goldsboro, who is a student, the school resource officer at, um, at Balboa. He's a na native San Franciscan and a graduate of McIntyre, I believe. Yep, went back to And uh, he's been, as I mentioned earlier, he's been a member of the police department for six years. Officer, could you please uh, talk about, the, could you describe what the school resource officer program is and um, what kind of interventions you provide and some of the success stories that you experience? The um, school resource program here in San Francisco is like a lot of school resource programs throughout the country. We're federally funded and we're a unit within the police department and our focus is, is a lot different than the, the standard street cop. Um, we're in the schools, uh, majority of the high schools and the middle schools. Uh, some high schools actually have two SROs. But as a fully staffed unit, we have 42 SROs and a supervisor in charge of us. And our, our goals in the school, our, our very first goal in the school is safety for the students and the teachers and the staff. Um, recent events in Virginia have brought to light the importance of security within the, uh, the schools. That's our first goal. Our second goal is I sort of fill a role as law enforcement counselor. Kids will come up and talk to me and ask me, hey, um, can my stepdad do this to me? Can my mom take away my iPod? Um, is this legal for me to do this? Um, so I, I counsel kids on those things. Uh, listen to your mother, it's very important. As a matter of fact, <laughs> as a matter of fact my mother's in the audience too. Thank you for being here. Um, and, and the third role that we fill is sort of law enforcement educator. Um, drivers, education teachers will ask us to help teach classes. Um, certain things uh, at Balboa, they have certain pathways for the students to go to and one of them is law academy. So I help with the mock court, um, they have questions like that. Um, so educator. Success stories, um, I, I don't know. Um, as SROs, our, our goal is not to criminalize a student. Uh, sometimes we have to, but that's not the goal. Um, if I encounter a kid with a gun, I really don't have much leeway uh, as to what to do. Um, but certain other cases, uh, we like to send the kids to mediation or to CARC. Um, this slide that you brought up about only 32% of the kids getting sent to CARC for an arrestable offense, I, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Roger, but it's not our choice what to do. Um, I encounter a child that needs to be arrested for whatever. I call CARC and say, I have this kid. This kid has done this. What do I do with them? And at that point, they tell me whether I go to CARC 
or whether I go to YGC. So um, that that's particular statistic, it's, it's not up to me as to what happens. Right, and maybe you can talk more about which types of uh, referrals are eligible for CARC, uh, because at this juncture, this is where the um, the conduct is starting to escalate from the school level up to the juvenile justice level, and at this being one of the entry point, can you explain maybe a little bit more in terms of which cases are not eligible for CARC and what happens? Certain cases are not allowed to go to CARC. For example, uh, violence is not allowed to go to CARC. If you um, assault somebody or rob somebody, those cases are immediately referred up to YGC for um, a booking up there. Um, if you don't have a local San Francisco address, you're not allowed to go to CARC. Um, there are a lot of students that go to San Francisco public schools that live in Daly City, or I, I know kids at Balboa that take BART over every day from the East Bay. So those cases aren't allowed to go to BART. But typically, I mean, CARC. The, um, typically, the violent ones are not allowed to go down to CARC. Is there any way to um, exercise discretion on, in terms of the level of violence, or is it based simply on the type of offense that's listed on the citation? For example, is there a distinction between um, two kids in middle school who were scrapping and having a fight on the yard versus um, someone who, who um, jumped the guy with a bat at school. Is there any, does, I mean, there are two levels of violence there, but they both could be classified as violent offenses. Is CARC able to distinguish between the factual situation in the case in determining whether or not that student is eligible? Um, they do ask us questions when we call down there, and we explain what happens. Um, and they also get a copy of our police reports that we do write so that they're able to determine what could best serve the student in types of uh, counseling if they are eligible to go to CARC. But certainly uh, somebody with a bat or a knife or a robbery um, uh, effectively using violence against another person is not going to be eligible to go to CARC. And um, how many schools have uh, SROs right now? Or is it every school in the, in the district? The, the goal is to have an SRO in every high school and every middle school, but that doesn't quite happen because staffing levels don't allow it. Um, but some high schools have more problems. Mission has two SROs. Um, uh, Galileo has two SROs. Um, at Balboa, I'm able to accomplish things with just me. So it depends. So um, Jean mentioned a good point, and I'm, I'm going to move on to our next slide, which is um, uh, the disproportionate uh, minority contact that occurs in terms of school offenses, because I think it's uh, impossible to ignore the data uh, this slide talks about the total enrollment of students in San Francisco Unified and the um, percentage breakdown. This is from the SFUSD website uh, for the 2006-2007 school year. And um, you can see for Latino Latinas is 22.4%. African American youth comprise about 9.3% of the student population. Um, Chinese students are 30, 31.9% and so on. Uh, but when we look at the next slide in terms of who's getting arrested, uh, in terms of the ethnicity of those arrested at school in the fall semester, it's a little bit upside down. Um, what stands out the most is you can see that African-American youth comprise 42.2% of the ethnicity of those arrested in the school. Um, another, when I was looking through the data for today and I was looking um, at the information from the SFUSD profile, one number really stood out to me, and that's um, when I was looking at the total ethnic representation of African-American youth in school, um, from grades one to six, African-American youth comprise about 12 to 14% of the student population, but for some reason, uh, 12th graders, uh, African-American youth only comprise about 9% of the student population, a significant drop-off. 
And then you see numbers like this where the uh, percentage of African-American youth being arrested in schools is so much dramatically higher. It almost leads one to believe that an African-American youth in school is more likely to get arrested than to get their high school diploma. But um, maybe Jen Kasong, she's the network, um, network coordinator for AON. And she, AON is a coalition of over 20 community organizations and agencies dedicated to advocating for API youth. Jen, maybe you can talk about some of the possible causes to the disproportionate minority contact and what some of the solutions might be. And after you speak, I'm going to also open this up to the entire panel for anyone who has feedback on this. Um, well, one of the things that um, our community leaders and our advocates um, in the members of AON is that we're seeing is there's tension and misunderstandings between student um, cliques due to culture, race, gender, or class. And the big thing, as um, Kim mentioned, is that there's an increase of racial um, violence and harassment issues. And just to give you an idea is in a recent survey, about 30% of the APIU surveyed say they have been victims of violence by a non-Asian. And in response, they reported feeling angry, fighting back, or calling friends for backup. In that sense, um, 38% of APIU surveys stated racial tensions are the cause of fights among youth. And so that's one um, of the issues that we need to address in providing more of a safe reporting system for the youth. And a big thing, too, is, as Kim mentioned as well, is that there are language and cultural barriers between school and parents, school and students and students. And what it is is that a lot of um, – it says here about 70% of – 331 API youth that were surveyed in San Francisco, they indicated that they translated for their parents for, for parents some or all of the time. And in, in that sense, a lot of the li limited English um, proficient families face both cultural and language barriers that prevent them from advocating and participating in the rehabilitation of their children. So that's one of the things that. What about other panelists? What are, what are the causes and what are some of the solutions to addressing the uh, disproportionate minority contact? I, I, I don't think and I don't mean to suggest that there's any coordinated effort to make these numbers come out, but this is, this is the reality of it, and this is also what we see in the juvenile justice system as well. I mean, you know, on behalf of the district, I mean, we'll own the problem. It's, you know, it's something we struggle with all the time. I mean, if you look at citywide stats, when you look at, you know, homicides, when you look at you know, number of folks on CalWORKs, when you look at public housing, you see a disproportionate issue across the city. You know, it, it's the school district is a microcosm of what's going on in San Francisco, and it's incredibly unfortunate. You know, the African-American community across the board is disproportionately impacted by the systems. And, you know, the school district, you know, it's not perfect in dealing with these problems. You know, I was thinking about it as the panelists were talking, and, you know, I feel like the school district does a better job with language issues, you know, monolingual students versus these cultural issues that are going on inside our schools. And, you know, the examples I can give for, you know, Galileo High School, they just launched this initiative this year where they went through student by student, um, all the African-American students on their role. A, they found out that only one was either in an honors or an AP class at the entire high school, which, you know, is a travesty. 
And so what they did is they're going down case by case and looking at each student and figuring out, okay, this student is ready. They've just been overlooked. And they set up an entire, you know, there's a task force at the school site that's looking at the, you know, disproportionate representation of African-American students in AP and honors classes. So, you know, I think, you know, within the district, there are definitely, you know, there's a whole focal student piece where all schools are um, – required to look at how they're addressing the needs of African-American, Latino, and monolingual students every year in something called the school site plan. Is it perfect? No. I mean, I don't really, you know, I'm not going to sit up here and make excuses or be defensive. It's a challenge. Um, I think really it's time to break down the issues and, and look at it student by student. When we can do that and really focus on specific needs, you know, you look at 56,000 students in the district, there are, you know, 750 of their resident school sites, for example. There's about, you know, 34, you know, up to 40 when you look at all the smaller schools like Cats and Metro schools. That's maybe 20, 25, 30 kids at each site. There's no reason all the resources in the city, we can't identify those students and provide them the support they needed. But it's really getting down to the individual level to figure out who the students are and connecting the resources. And the school sites struggle with that, too. And, you know, it's something we're trying to address through the wellness centers, through the project I'm working on, and just through better coordination in general with community-based organizations. Thank you very much. Um, moving up through the – so we, we've been talking about how an offense at school can turn into um, a suspension and then an explosion and, in some cases, an arrest. I see a question. And I'll repeat the question for our audience at home. The question is, uh, what is the gender breakdown in terms of arrest, and is there, uh, is there a disparity in gender arrest? Uh, am I saying your question correctly? Well, I know that there's disparity in gender arrest, but I mean, between the different ethnic racial groups, is the gender breakdown strikingly different, or do you see what I'm saying? Yes, and I don't have that data, and I wonder if anyone on the panel can address it. I don't have the statistic in front of me, but um, I would say that males get arrested uh, a lot more than females. But that, I mean, I couldn't tell you a number. Okay. I'm going to, oh, I see one more but, question. Oh. They should know. They don't always know. I mean, one thing that at the school site, um, there's something called an SAP or an SST, middle school and high school. I don't know if, if everyone's aware of that, but there's a student assistance program and a student support team. And that's a group of administrators and counselors, deans, sometimes security, sometimes um, CBO reps to sit together and talk about a targeted group of students. And that's where that information comes out, where we really sit down and start to look at the student record. Um, when those are effective, we do a better job supporting our students. 
And that's something at the school site that we're doing a better job with quality control of making it happen. Because that's the one point where we get that information. It's so critical to their success. And then it goes out to the rest of the, the school staff. Okay, I'm going to move on to the um, next portion. And I actually am um, hoping to reserve some time for questions and answers at the end of the panel. So please hold on to your questions. Uh, we were talking about how, um, how offenses are, are moving up through the system. And uh, at this point, we've looked at the numbers on or of arrest, those students who have been arrested for something that happened at school that are taken to CART rather than to YGC. Uh, but uh, as we can see, a majority of the um, arrests relate to violent offenses, and those violent offenses are then being deferred directly to the juvenile hall. Uh, let me turn to Gina Mobley. Gina Mobley has been a deputy public defender for, uh, she's a veteran defender. She was recognized this year um, by the Women Defenders Association uh, for her work, for her leadership, and for being an inspiration to others. And she is uh, well known as being an outspoken and uh, devoted uh, advocate for the youth that she represents. Jean, can you talk about what happens when the cases do come to juvenile court? Yes. Um, Looking at the statistics, um, in terms of arrests um, that go to CARC, those are young people who are going to be cited out and will not make it to Juvenile Hall. <clears throat> if the number is 38% of arrests go to CARC, that would mean that 62% are going to Juvenile Hall. If they fall within the zero tolerance, category, they also are falling within high risks in our risk assessments that we use for determining whether that youth should be turned away at the door or actually incarcerated. And um, those are the, on the slide, the zero tolerance and mandatory expulsion offenses. Those are the offenses that are most likely going, the door is going to be wide open and they're going to uh, be welcomed into our juvenile hall. And they're likely to remain there for quite a long time. The law provides speedy trial remedies so that kids don't languish indefinitely. But even using the laws and using them judiciously and quickly, it's very likely that a child who's detained at the door will stay in custody for at least five weeks. And that is the period before they have a trial and then the time period to prepare a disposition report for those children. At the time of the disposition, the court will make a determination whether to release them or not to release them. I think as everybody here is probably aware, a couple of weeks ago we had 156 youth um, locked up at our juvenile justice facility, an outstandingly large number, a dangerously large number. And when you talk about disproportionate representation of youth in our juvenile hall, you can see that it's, it's beginning already at the school where 42% of the arrests are for African-American youth. Um, and they only represent 13% of the entire population in the elementary school. But by the time they get to high school, it's already that number has been reduced to below 10%. It's 9% by the time they're a senior. So what's happening to these kids is that that incarceration is starting that arrest is happening at school. They're, and it's incredible. They're at school. They're engaged and trying to make it. They are going to school only to be arrested. Then their schooling is being disrupted. And we know from the expulsion 
statistics that it's happening as early as middle school when that disruption occurs they are already on the path to failure that disruption for a week two weeks three weeks is the beginning of that legacy of failure last night i dreamt that i was taking a final exam for a class that i had not attended i knew i was going to fail i woke up this morning to my relief it wasn't true but the reality is that for our young people starting in the middle school our african american students that is their reality they're going to fail because they didn't attend the classes and they're now taking the exam and they're not ready to go one day behind is one day behind how do you catch up how do you continue to catch up what happens if a child is after their period of incarceration they do go to school at the youth guidance center or the juvenile justice center is what we call it now they do attend school but they're not getting the materials and the curriculum that they were receiving in their classes they're not actually staying on track they are attending school but they are not progressing when they are dispoed out often if they were in an expulsion situation they're not returned to their original school so they one yet another disruption resulting in a legacy of failure and if they are returned to their school which is frankly unlikely because they've already been sort of branded as a troublemaker and the chances are they're going to go to the civic center school which is a uh, collection of students who have failed in the middle school and high school and they're all together in one school with one teacher eight to ten students now the numbers are small there's a ratio of one to eight but each of these children at that school has already learned internalized that they are going to fail and because they've internalized that message it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy and why has that happened that's where why we're here today to try to figure it out I don't know if I can bring some solutions in but I do want to say that on the education code uh, makes it an offense to bring an iPod to school it's 48901.5 of the education code prohibits iPods and other electronic devices at school and it's in the handbook at page 23 and yet 8% of the offenses that are going to be zero tolerance are the theft of iPods and cell phones and electronic devices and so why don't we enforce that rule don't bring your iPod your tele your your little your toys to school if the school was enforcing that right there 8% of those arrests wouldn't be occurring and why are those arrests occurring because the kids don't the, the kids that are taking them don't have them and they want them but the kids that are bringing them are they being disciplined for bring bringing them no so there is an economic issue of disparity that isn't fair it's just plain fairness enforce that rule <clears throat> And the other thing, there, um, Ms. Kim indicated that there was a sense of disconnectedness at school. And I just want to make a plug that there's a large group of kids that felt very connected through the ROTC program. And the school board defunded that program. 
That is a mistake. I don't care who the student is. If they are connected to something that's happening at school, that should be embraced. Whether it's a military organization, a sports organization, a quasi-military organization, a program for, for gender gay kids, bisexual kids, who cares? If it increases connectedness, then that's a reason to come to school and that's a reason to succeed. And that's what we need to find is reasons to succeed. One more story. When I was in, my daughter was in second grade, I took a short leave of absence from, the, from my job and I went to school every day with my daughter. And they had a poetry program. And in the poetry program, the children wrote about who they were and what they were feeling. And one of the children, uh, a little African-American boy, wrote a poem about not having food in the refrigerator. And I recognized, and I wasn't a professional, I wasn't an educator, I was just a parent. I recognized that if somebody didn't pay attention to that child, he was not going to make it. I knew that after only reading this child's poem, not knowing who this child was. And I was alarmed, and I was dispirited by the fact that nobody else seemed to be alarmed by this. We need to begin to be alarmed immediately when children enter school. Because uh, if a non-professional can recognize that there's a cause for alarm, then we need to really embrace that child. And I hope he's not my client today, but I wouldn't be surprised if he were. Thank you, Jean. And Jean, you talk, so one of, the, one of the impacts on our youth when they have their school situations escalated up to the juvenile court level is that very fact of going through the court process, the, um, losing their school placement and the resulting disconnectedness to their school. Jean, what are some of the other uh, long-term impacts that are maybe not always considered when a youth is referred up to the juvenile court system for something that happened at school? They, they have a juvenile court record, and, and Jeff talked about, we saw, the, the, we saw the end line, which was the YA, now known as DJJ. What are, what are some of the other impacts that youth face when, when their conduct is brought to the juvenile court level? Well, I mean, from a psychological point of view, it's, it's humiliating, it's dispiriting. Um, they end up with criminal records. Uh, the, the fact of a criminal record is an impediment for could be an impediment forever um, if that record isn't sealed. They are defined and criminalized, and the conduct that they're being criminalized for is conduct that very often is exaggerated. So that they're coming into the system with a robbery, but it really isn't a robbery. It's really a theft from the person. Or they're coming in with an aggravated assault, which really is a schoolyard fight. Or they're coming in with a sexual assault, which is really a, a young man and woman who are exploring their sexuality and somebody's a little disappointed. <laughs> and, and, and often those, those charges, what, what it turns into in juvenile court are strikes because that taking of the iPod is prosecuted as a robbery and a robbery is a strike under California three strikes law that could last on the child's record forever. Um, right. But I want to take this opportunity to, to go through a fact pattern. This is... Um, the names are changed. The facts are it's based on a, something that really happened uh, between Sally and Billy. Um, Sally is a 15-year-old girl who immigrated to the United States about two months ago. She uh, is frequently teased and harassed by her classmates about her physical appearance. 
One day while sitting in class, Billy, a 14-year-old boy, threw a piece of a sandwich at her. Sally then threw an empty metal can at him, which hit his right hand. All the other boys in the class started laughing at her. Sally then threw another metal can at Billy, hitting him in the back of his head. Billy suffered a bump and a small cut. Billy said to the um, dean when he was interviewed, I didn't know that Sally would become so angry when I threw my sandwich at her. What happened? Sally was arrested, and she was charged with two counts of felony assault with force likely to cause great bodily injury. One, assault, one felony assault for each count. Jen, looking at these facts, how could alternative methods have worked better to prevent Sally from coming to juvenile court? Well, first of all, um, this particular case brings to light um, one of the challenges that Ann has faced in which when we're talking about improving sa um, school safety in the sense that many times a lot of the teachers and administrators, the first thing that they do um, is um, resort to expulsion, suspension, or reporting to, to the police as their only and first response um, to violence and harassment. So um, while this response might be initially you know, seem quickly to resolve the situation. Many times it doesn't address um, the long-term solution in establishing a safe and secure environment for all students. So in terms of the of case of possible alternative methods to expulsion and um, incarceration, what could have happened is that administrators could have referred um, the students to conflict mediation programs. That actually, in I think um, you mentioned that this particular case happened in Marshall, which we all know that there's also already in place um, peer resource programs and wellness um, program initiatives that are actually based at Marshall, which the administrators could refer to those programs to that instead of resorting to contacting the police. So those are one of the things. And also by um, resolving mediation programs, a lot of students, this could encourage rehabilitation and um, building of community. And in a sense, it also can reduce, as we mentioned before, there's a lot of uh, reduce of tension and misunderstanding that have existed between the students that might be uh, related to culture, race, gender, and class. So um, an example, I know Tony is going to be talking about that more, but another thing to, um, another way that we can do it too is like peer mediation and peer courts. So that could be an option instead of right away um, incarceration. So this is a good opportunity to talk about some of the solutions that are available right now. And um, I'd like to uh, reintroduce David Moroff, um, who is the, who has 20 years experience working with youth and community development and gang and violence prevention. Uh, David is currently the Secure Our Schools Coordinator for the school district, which I believe started as a um, grant proposal from the police department. And uh, David, what are some of the barriers that you face in terms of working with other systems? And what, what have you um, been working on in your program? Well, in Relation to this case, for example, I mean, there, you know, there are a lot of cases like this that people don't hear about where the administrators or teachers, they work at that SAP, that SST level, and they deal with the cases on the site. I mean, Tony's program is a good example of something if we had it every site, it'd be a huge asset. You know, there are a lot of programs out there are working. It's just what do we fund and what do we not fund? There's also a lot of programs that need money. So part of it is prioritizing where the funding goes, and if we decide we want, you know, Agency A that does a great job in every school, then we need to prioritize that and make it happen. Um, but, you know, again, across the board, the school sites respond to these incidents differently, and there's an incident report process, there's the SAP, there's the SST. So they are handled on a case by case basis. 
Um, through Secure Our Schools, the goal has been to really just identify we're at four sites, the 25 students at each of those sites are at the highest level of risk, the kids that are being transferred from site to site, the ones that are, you know, causing problems in the classrooms that aren't coming to school, that are just, you know, posing challenges to the school site. And each of the sites has an intervention specialist, three of whom work at community-based organizations, one of whom is a school district employee. And it's really not rocket science. I mean, the solution to this problem would be that someone should have connected with that girl the moment she stepped on that school site, knowing that she just got into the country and obviously is going to have challenges, and made sure that she was shadowed, mentored, and supported from the day she walked in the door so that these issues were being addressed. I mean, that's the simple solution to these problems when you see a student in this situation coming onto a site. And as part of the goal of the program I'm working on is identifying the students that are going to be having problems at the site, connecting them to whether it be, you know, peer court, um, a case management. I mean, many of you have gotten calls from me saying, you know, I have this student over here. Can you hook up with them and just figure out how they're doing, what they need, what support's necessary to get them connected to the site, which is a challenge, and make sure they stay there and succeed so we don't start moving them around. Because every time they're moved, like you were saying, there's going to be a gap in that education process. And, you know, schools are based on a year. And if you lose part of that year, you're behind. So, we work very closely with the school resource officers. It's a grant actually through the police department, and they're part of that team as far as connecting the, the students to the school resource officer, to the intervention specialist, to whether it be the wellness center, which Marshall has one, which could have intervened in this situation, um, peer resources, whatever school site services are available, and then connecting to the big picture outside of the school. The challenge, um, you know, just like the school sites are almost their own separate entities, so is the CBO world. You know, so is, you know, whether it be juvenile probation, human services agency, DPH, a lot of it is who you connect with. You know, everyone here knows it. You know, you either can connect to a good person or a bad person, you know. And if you get the good person, you're lucky, and your student's going to get what they need. If you get the person that's disgruntled and burnt out and not into their job or just not qualified, you're going to, the results are going to be obvious. So, you know, a lot of it is just that piece of connecting with the right people and understanding the network that's available of the professionals that are committed, connected, and that understand the needs of the kids. And that's really part of what we're trying to do is bring those resources to the campus, educate the administrators about what's available. You know, the, the intervention specialists are designed to be the people that kind of canvass the community. And, you know, a challenge, too, is, you know, how many people, for example, here have kids at, at Burton? Raise your hand. You know, work with kids at Burton High School, you know. The hands go up, and even there, you know, if you think about one site trying to connect with all those different people, it's a challenge. So we're trying to make it simpler through a wellness center, through an intervention specialist, that those resources are ma made available to the, to the principal, to the dean, to the counselor, to the teachers, and that someone understands what's out there. I mean, that's, that's a big challenge in working with the systems. And then just, you know, all the different layers of bureaucracy that everyone has to go through to get the job done, you know, another challenge. So, you know, Real Rich is trying to cut through the red tape, identify and connect with individual students. Again, you know, it's not efficient but it's necessary. How do we figure out what each individual student needs, create a plan that addresses their needs, and then monitor it to make sure that everyone involved with that plan is doing their job? And David, you told me about a really good example of where that worked, where you were able to defuse a potentially violent situation. Could you talk about that? Yeah, it's just, you know, we heard actually through a school resource officer that, you know, there was a, a gang fight, you know, however you want to call it, scheduled at Washington one day. 
And, you know, we did our intelligence, called people that know, know what's going on, you know, call this person, try to validate it, call this person, okay, you're both, you're both seeing some patterns. We know there, there been, there's been a lot of racial tension up at Washington that's been ongoing this year, so we knew there's already a precursor to this happening. So basically we just called in, you know, we called in the school resource officers, we called in some extra support from our own security guards, called Sulu and his Muni MTAP folks to get them connected, and called the Community Response Network. In this situation we knew it was um, reported to be an Asian gang issue, so we called in the, you know, the, the, the uh, APA, Asian Pacific Islander, um, CRN, got them on the phone, and basically, we knew where the hotspots were because of previous incidents around some bus stops where the kids get off and unload and where they go. And basically just had everybody out. We were all connected. We were communicating, patrolling. And the CRN saw a group of students from Galileo coming off a bus that were prepared to, you know, fight another group that's waiting at a bus stop. And they were prepared and they're ready. They, it was just simple. They just told the kids, get back on the bus. They knew the kids, they had a relationship, the kids got back on the bus, and it was done. It was squashed. You know, so it's really a simple matter of using the resources that are available, knowing who the right people are, and trying to intervene before things happen. And probably five to ten less arrests at juvenile hall that day. Um, so knowing the child, coordination between uh, programs. Uh, I am really delighted to have Tony Litwack and Deanna Friars in here. Tony uh, is from the Pure Court program, which is – I don't know if everyone is aware that it's been up and running and it is um, effective in the school sites that they work with. And Deanna Frierson is a 10th grader at Lincoln, and thank you so much for being here today and, and taking a day out of school. Could uh, you both describe your program and how it works and how it can be effective? I'll take a second and start here. I see it's running short on our time. I will speak briefly, and thanks to Jeff Adachi and the Public Defender's Office for putting on a juvenile justice conference like this, because it's important it's important that we all get together to talk about these things. And I'm going to turn it over to Deanna here. But before I do that, I want us to use this as an analogy, this meeting today, for what's going on in the city, which is we have important and smart people in a panel, but there's eight adults talking to you for an hour. And I don't know if that's me or not, but one adult and one child who's working on these programs in the school, and she'll get a couple minutes. Again, I don't know if that's me. I'm sorry for that whine. But... Um, we need to keep doing these programs and we need to transfer what we do here and all this discussion and great ideas and coffee and donuts into action on the street and in the school. Programs like these, programs like Pure Court, Pure Resources, the CRNs, all these things that are doing work on the ground, that's, that's the action, not the meetings. So I want to leave you with that and let Deanna describe what we're doing at Pure Court. Hey guys, um, I've been doing peer court for like four years. Um, I started at Visitation Valley Middle School in the eighth grade. Um, it's having an impact on our community at Visitation Valley, and it's like motivating us to become better citizens in our communities and getting more involved with other teenage people. And I think her name is Jane. Jane Kim, yeah, she asked earlier, how can we repair the harm? And that's how we tie it into peer court. That's what we do is to repair the harm. And we do that by getting to know people and understanding what they went through and to know that what they did was wrong instead of just expending or expelling them from school. Um, yeah, I think that's all I have to say. Thank you very much. And we... 
There are brochures about how to, about the Pure Accord program and how to refer uh, students to it available in the back of the room. Uh, at this point, I'd like to conclude by asking each of the panelists to just give one specific recommendation yeah. for how uh, we can intervene to reduce the number of school arrests. And we can start with Jane. Um. <coughs> Actually, I'm going to speak more specifically about student discipline because I want to get to the point before we're even doing, this, doing the school arrest. Um, I, I, this is my first year on the school board. Um, this is my fifth month serving. And just in my past five months, to me, student dis discipline has become my top priority in terms of what I'd like to spend the next four years in trying to help reform. And um, one, of, one of the things that it's really important for us to listen to youth voices and what they'd like to see in our schools it's also really important that we have leadership from adults in terms of how we'd like to see our schools run and how we'd like to treat our young people in our school environments. Um, one of the things, you know, I, I wish Tony and Dion had more time to talk about their um, peer, um, peer course program. It, it's an amazing program. It's the type of programs that I want to see more of at our school. It's not replicating the, uh, a court system where youth adjudicate over youth. It's really youth facilitating between between um, quote-unquote victims and respondents and having them work out how they want to deal with the <coughs> harm that actually happened. So I took your iPod, I hit you, you hit me. What are we going to do to actually make that better? And I think it's great that we have um, programs in place where we can actually stop fights from happening, but how are we going to stop that every single day? We put those kids back on the bus, but they're going to come back another week, or they'll do it on the weekend, they'll do it at another time. And we need to really figure out how we can actually repair what's actually going on between the students um, that's causing that behavior to constantly occur in our school sites. Um, one of the things that I'm really interested in doing is I'm really interested in working with groups like peer courts and other CBOs in terms of how we can put these programs into place and institutionalize them if that means mandating that certain, um, that certain um, penal code violations cannot come to expulsions and suspensions, whether that comes from the board or from the district. I think that we need to put that in place. We need to change the culture of how we deal with student discipline. Um, and that's one of the things that, that I'd like to work on. So if that means that if, if, there's a, if there's a school fight, you can't send that to suspension anymore. You have to deal with that on the school site, but we have to be able to give the schools the resources and the training to be able to do that. And that's, that is the challenge from the school district, is finding that funding and finding the resources to do that. And that's one of the things that I'd like to work on. And I do, I do want to thank everyone on this panel. And um, I, I think people in the audience probably know a lot more than even us here. And so thank you for, for being here. So the question is, what can we do to reduce the number of arrests at school? One, one recommendation on uh, what kind of interventions we can provide to reduce the number of school arrests. I'm not sure if everybody's aware of this, but as an SRO, at all costs, we try and avoid an arrest at school. Uh, as a matter of fact, and, when, and unfortunately, when they do happen at school, we go to great lengths to make sure we take the student out the back way so they're not embarrassed, all those sort of things. Uh, when possible, but if it's a safety issue, we don't really have a choice. We have to arrest somebody. Uh, Monday, two days ago, there were seven physical fights at Balboa High School. Uh, that's a huge number. Were there any arrests made? No. I think the fact that uh, the administrative staff there mediated all of those things, I think that that, um, as, as Jane said, it's probably a better way to go if possible. Sometimes you can't do that. So I would think that uh, greater communication 
with the students between each other would probably reduce the number of arrests at school. Jean? Um, I would like to see uh, students who are caught with weapons at school be provided with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder counseling. My experience is that most of the kids that I represent with weapons at school have been victimized, shot um, al already, and that is why they're bringing their weapons to school. They're terrified. And so I think we need to, t to look at that. There are programs in the city that provide PTSD therapy, and I think those kids should be considered as primary candidates for that kind of intervention and not for expulsion. Jen? Um, again, um, I think one of the focuses in actual action in the sense of, again, providing um, funding to community response networks that are already existing and which provide um, conflict mediation and crisis response. And the second thing, too, is, again, is we're thinking about institutionalizing a change, is one is to properly train teachers and the staff and administrators, because it's all just not about the students. It has to go from the from the top to the down, even to the janitors, to talk about the racial tensions that are happening on and to address those issues. So they need to be properly trained and have the resources to do that. Great, David. First, we have to start in elementary school. You know, middle school is too late. These kids and families are starting to be chronically student early. The earlier we get them, the better success we're going to have. Second, there's something called the uh, Safe Schools Task Force. IONS on it, Jen, Asian Law Caucus, um, Chinese for Affirmative Action, the CRNs, some other community agencies. Um, next week, if everything goes as planned, we're going to be introducing a little card. We started this back in November, but every student is going to get a card, Safe School Line. And basically, it has a phone number, an email address, and then a website where they can go to report incidents that are happening to them, like in this situation listed here. It's another opportunity for them to be able to tell people what's going on if they feel like someone's not listening, they're being bullied, they just don't feel comfortable going to someone at the school site. It's something kind of through a community school um, city partnership we came up with, and all of you should know about it because just let the students know that that's there. It's not going to solve all our problems. We wanted to give them one more opportunity to express themselves and give another avenue. So it's called the Safe School Line. Um, you'll hear more about it next week, but just definitely you know, make students aware that it's there and it's available for them. Um, also to stress that it is an anonymous reporting line. Tony, you use Pure Court more, right? Pure court, use pure court all the time. Okay, I have a couple of things to say about this. What can we do uh, in the future? Yeah, one, use, use pure court, use programs. We need to shift the way there's a mentality here. Let's, let me go back a year, five years in the city. Everybody knows this. There's juvenile detentions, alternatives initiative. There's disproportionate minority confinement working groups. And here we sit today, as long as I've been doing this, over seven years in this town, the numbers haven't changed. If they have, they've gotten worse, right? Everybody, minority families leaving the city, yet the DMC numbers are the same. What does that mean? More minority kids in the system, not less. Maybe we all need to quit our jobs. You know what I mean? Maybe we just need to stop going to monthly meetings and quit our jobs and let other people handle it. If not, we need a new mentality. You need to get away from uh, the idea of zero tolerance. If you want to kick a kid out of school for bringing a gun, no problem. But the zero you get, we need to understand that these people are busy and tired in the schools, and they see zero tolerance on the top of a page. They don't read to the bottom of the page where it says you're allowed to use the least restrictive sentencing option. They see, oh, I know this kid, and I knew your brother, and you have a, your family is a problem. You're out. 
that has to stop immediately. That's, that's my opinion. We need to change our mentality from people that work in CBOs, from people that work in the justice system, and especially those people that sit on the line at the school. We need to change some brains, some minds. Um, as a teenager and a youth in San Francisco, I wrote on my paper that we need to be educated. Like, we don't know our rights and opportunities out there, and, you, like, people make it so hard for us to get to the opportunities. Like, my youth programs is, like, okay, but we still need more. There's more of us to reach and stuff like that. And a lot of people, like, I've been sitting here for, like, an hour and a half saying that if you get arrested, you're, like, you're going to fail and stuff like that. But, I mean, we all have time. We have time to um, get educated and to get in school and learn more about our rights and what can we do to prevent it. So I think we need to be educated. If I wasn't in peer court, I probably wouldn't be up here. I would probably be in school, like, trying to work my hardest to fail, right? No, I don't think so. So that's my opinion. I'm going to open it up for a few questions, but I'm going to ask the first question, and that's to Deanna. Uh, Deanna, would you please tell us all about an experience you had at Pure Court where you, there was a successful mediation and intervention? Um, my experience in Pure Court is just um, going to different schools and seeing everyone's problems and how can I help. Um, one case that is successful is one is in Francisco Middle School when two kids stole, like, a credit card and used up all her money, and her parents were very sick, and she couldn't go visit them. So we, like, gave them community service, wrote empathy letters to know that they care about her and her situation and stuff like that. And we haven't heard from them. Like, they're doing very good and stuff, and I, they should be in high school now. So we haven't heard from them, so I guess that's good. <laughs> no news is good news. I'm going to take um, one or two questions. Oh, we have microphones going around, so if you could hold on a second. Let's have this gentleman, and we'll come with the microphone piece. I just, uh, I just had a suggestion. So say we uh, we teach the kids English, math, science, all those periods. What if we had like a mandatory life skills class that they had to attend? That way they're getting uh, the life skills program every week rather than uh, groups having to come and uh, throw workshops. So con it's, it's consistent every week, and it's drained into their brain rather than, oh, well, maybe you should go to this program rather than it's mandatory. Have a class in school that the kids can go to. Well, we're teaching them math, English, and, you know, their probably major problem is life skills. Instead so why don't we teach them all over the city to get their programs? Right, rather than suggesting referrals, rather than mandating them, like how we mandate them to take a math class, make them take a life scores class. Make it, or what, do you, what do they do in homeroom? I don't know. Well, I know in uh, Abraham Lincoln High School and a lot of high schools, we have career ed following with driver ed and, like, health health ed so in career ed you learn about colleges and how you can succeed in life and ROTC and PE are like you learn how to communicate with people better and you learn how to keep fit and to learn how to become better citizens in life to work with people but I get what you're saying 
But it's like we have no room for that, and, like, a lot of people don't have money, I guess, for mm-hmm. San Francisco education. So, Can I just quickly add to that? And this is a little plug. When Prop 13 passed, we lost – schools lost a third of their funding. And one of the things that got cut, one of the victims was seventh period. And, and I'm not saying, you know, for the students in the room that don't want to hear about extending the school day – because we lost seventh period, we lost the time for electives and where the reading and the math and all of that, you know, we, we get tested on that. We're federally mandated to do those things. But we, we lost that funding, and that, that has been a huge loss to our district. And I completely agree. We, we need more time in the school day to address not just the academics. Let me get this gentleman over here. Okay. First of all, I wanted to congratulate all of you for the efforts, the very sincere efforts that you are making to address this huge American failure. Now I want to ask an information gathering question. What happened to the Dream Schools Initiative? I honestly, I don't work in that area. I don't know the answer. I could find out for you. I'd be happy to call you later with the information. I just don't have it. Does anybody know what happened to the Dream Schools Initiative? I'll answer that question quickly, and then we can. I'll talk with you afterwards. The Dream School Initiative is still in place in the school district. Um, We're still gathering data in terms of the successes that we've seen in our in our three pilot. Well, now our two pilot schools. The Dream School Initiative still exists in in at least seven other schools, and um, it only started two years ago. Um, we're still compiling, compiling the data to see how extending the school day, having college preparatory classes earlier, and the parent academies um, has been affecting student achievement. We, we have one question back to you. Um, hi, I'm, oh. I'm from Alameda County Probation, and my experience with young people when they've been incarcerated for 19 days, they can get school credit. But when that youth is incarcerated for 18 days and they're going to school every day, they don't get any school credit. And what is going to be done about that, if anything, to allow a young person to get credit for every day that they're in a classroom while they're detained in the juvenile justice system? Again, I'm a, I'm a six-month veteran of the school district, so I don't have that answer, but I'd be happy to try to find out for you. Okay. Do I have time for one more question? Yeah. Um, I, it seems to me that over the last uh, 40 or 50 years, we've had a lot of different types of programs, some similar, some not, that we've noticed to be effective, uh, particularly in these situations. Um, a lot of those depend on how much money is available for budgets from year to year, from administration to administration. The community and resources then tries to rebuild these kinds of resources in a variety of different ways, new people, new circumstances. Uh, so my question is, uh, how much uh, does this, the system, between all of you, um, look at uh, these kinds of researches over the last 40, 50 years where these problems have existed, particularly where we see what are the similarities in these different groups, uh, the such as the Asian Pacific Islanders percentages, the uh, black minority percentages, the 22% white percentages. What are those similarities in terms of the problems that are similar across the, the races in general that are similar? And do these solutions, could these solutions apply to everyone uh, rather than these specific uh, piecemeal situations? Anyone on the panel? I mean, some of the situations we deal with, you know, are obviously, you know, family-related 
substance abuse plays in a lot to schools across all ethnicity you know there are groups across the school that have that disconnected marginalized feeling where they don't feel like they're connected to the school site and I think what you refer to every student could benefit from a life skills class so a lot of the kind of the quality of life there's general issues you know kids feeling bullied cuts across all all classes so there's a lot of similarities and I think that's why one of the things we really need to do a better job at is addressing the overall school climate because that's going to improve the environment for everybody that's there I have just one comment on that as well which is that we see this as a continuum with good bad good kids on one end and bad kids on the other and the things that happen in school need to be dealt with in school like people have set up here on the on the panel and what we're doing now, what I believe we're doing now is widening the net, which is a term that isn't used more now as it was four or five years ago when it was a used to describe kids who are getting more services because we got them arrested. Now they're getting more service because they're in the juvenile probation department. After that, they're going to get even more services when they're incarcerated. And we're, you know, a stitch in time saves nine and we're not doing that. And a dollar in time saves kids going to jail and then us paying ten bucks for that same program after jail that we could have given them before to keep them out. And in San Francisco, I don't see anybody in a, in a position to spend money taking a leadership role in prevention, diversion, and intervention. I don't see a ca I might be wrong. I don't see a category. I don't see anyone standing up saying we're the ones in charge of keeping kids out of jail. Uh, I think it's time for that. Thank you very much. I hope that um, we've left you with some recommendations for how to do just what Tony said, provide more prevention and more intervention early on as part of our theme of making justice happen. And thank you to all the panelists. And I'd like everybody to please sit down. We are going to be doing Gang, gang Law 101, how gang charges affect our youth. And I'd like to uh, introduce our moderator and a very good friend of mine, uh, Deputy Public Defender Greg Feldman. Good morning, folks. Uh, <laughs> my name is Greg Feldman, and as Patty said, I'm a Deputy Public Defender. I have been in this criminal law business in one way or the other for about 17 years, uh, working for uh, Jeff in the Public Defender's Office for about the last five. Thank you all so very, very much for coming here today. Um, this is, like Jeff said, our fourth <coughs> summit, and let's hope we can make it the best one of all. Um, the panel we've got here this morning is Gang Law 101. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, not quite loud enough. Is that better now? Yeah. I have the same problem with court reporters. I'm constantly being told to, to speak up. Um, the panel's called Gang Law 101, and we're going to be looking at gang laws and how they affect uh, our youth. We're going to be looking at the gang life and how it affects our youth. Um, bear with me, I am trying to learn how to use the word youth. Uh, I have been using the word kids all my life. And uh, I used that word with Patty, my boss, uh, last week, and she reminded me that kids are baby goats, which, interestingly enough, is something my mom always used to say to me. So uh, bear with me. Um, I want to thank the uh, panelists for coming down. We've got some truly great minds up here uh, to speak with us this morning. So I want to introduce them briefly. And, uh, and again, thanks for coming, folks. Um, we have got Juniper Lesnick from the ACLU. Uh, we have... 
we're lucky to have Juniper here. Juniper is going to be talking to us about gang injunctions. That is something that has uh, begun to bubble up in, uh, in San Francisco, and we're going to be seeing more and more of it. Uh, we also have Rene Quinones from Home ESF. We have Marcelina Sandoval, who is a youth advocate in the Public Defender's Office. <clears throat> Mike Texada, who I will always think of as a, uh, a case manager for Brothers Against Guns and all the times he came to court and bailed me out. But uh, Mike is now working for San Francisco General Hospital for the uh, Wraparound Project. And lastly, but not definitely not least, we've got Sean Richard, who is the originator, the, uh, the man who brought his brothers against guns. A couple of things that I want to talk about, and then we're going to open things up to the uh, panel here. Jeff uh, mentioned briefly Penal Code Section 186.22. Uh, that is the primary tool, the primary tool of district attorneys and law enforcement in terms of prosecuting gang cases. Um, as Jeff pointed out, that's something that the legislator voted, le legislator voted in in uh, 1989, uh, the, what they called the STEP Act, which technically is called the Street Terrorism and Enforcement and Prevention Act, which kind of tells you the angle that uh, the legislature was looking at when they passed this thing. Um, what Penal Code Section 186.22 does is it makes it a crime to belong to or associate with what is called a criminal street gang and to do something in furtherance, something to help the criminal street gang along in some way or another. Um, it's interesting to look at how criminal street gang is defined because, it, again, it tells you the angle that the <coughs> legislature and the politicians were looking at. A criminal street gang is defined as an ongoing association of three or more people with a common name, sign, or symbol. The group has a primary activity of committing certain specified crimes that are all listed <coughs> in the penal code. And the group members all engage in a pattern of criminal activity. Um, criminal activity is defined as two or more specified acts, again, that are listed in the uh, penal code. Um, you can see that it's written very, very broadly. It's, it's wide open. Uh, it's not that hard to create a gang and to try to shoehorn it into, uh, <coughs> into this definition. And, and one of the things that we see in court on a regular basis is district attorneys that literally do try to create gangs um, because two, three or more kids are hanging out and getting into trouble together. I'd like to talk a little bit about law enforcement uh, response to, to gang laws. Um, law enforcement takes this stuff dead seriously. This is a war to the law enforcement personnel that are involved in this. Um, I've never heard the war on gangs. We talk about the war on drugs, but this is a war to these folks. Uh, last week when I was doing a little bit of research on the computer trying to come up with some ideas for what to talk about, um, and I was just kind of Googling gang enforcement. And I kept finding these uh, websites for gang task force all over California. And the thing I kept seeing, almost every single one of them had a front page picture of all these guys in black jackets with shotguns standing in front of these big fancy police cars. I mean, they looked a lot like paramilitary organizations when I, when I looked at these pictures and when I looked at what the message was that they were trying to be put out there. Um, these folks are dead serious, and they should not ever in any way be underestimated. They are out there. They're doing surveillance. 
They're going on reconnaissance missions. They're gathering intelligence. Uh, in our town, we have two particular officers. We have Officer Broberg, who focuses on the African-American gangs. We have Officer Molina, who focuses on the Mission District gangs. <clears throat> Come on, he's an old friend. Um, these guys, they're out there, and they're talking to kids, and they're getting information from kids, and God knows how they do it. Youth, excuse me. God knows how they do it but they're getting the youth to talk to them. They get the youth to pose, flying colors, making hand signs. It's amazing what they can get these guys to do. The number of interviews I've listened to uh, with Officer Molina over the years where a kid that's got a couple of friends in a gang all of a sudden is a hardcore member who has been jumped in and <clears throat> is going to describe all the bad things he's done to people. It's really amazing how these guys get people to open up. They take pictures. They've got walls of pictures. They're monitoring kids, and they know what's going on. They know what's going on on the street, and they know who the players are, and they're watching. The last thing I want to talk about is uh, consequences that we see with most of the youth that we're dealing with. Um, what does it mean to come into the San Francisco criminal courts? What does it mean to be on probation uh, when you have a gang case? Uh, your average kid that comes in that has either been involved in a gang-related type of a case or there's some kind of concerns from the probation officer, school personnel, parents, that the, uh, that the youth might be involved in gangs. Um, he's writing Sortrese on his, on his, his notebook. Uh, he wrote Oakdale on the side of his wall at home. Um, he's got uh, something on his cell phone that looks like it could be troublesome. Any kid that kind of gets people's attention as being a gang member, any kid that comes in with a gang-related crime is going to be get treated differently uh, by the probation department. Most likely, uh, he or she is going to be assigned to the Serious Offender Program. Uh, the Serious Offender Program are a group of probation officers who tend to have a smaller caseload. They tend to have uh, more resources. Um, for better or worse, they are able to give the youth a heck of a lot more attention. A youth that is put on probation with a gang case is going to be looking at limitations <clears throat> on what he or she can do. You've got to be in school at this time. You've got to be home at this time. You've got to be in your program at this point. Um, limitations on who he or she can speak with. Uh, there will be an order put into place. You cannot associate with anybody you know or think you know is, uh, is, a, is a gang member. Um, there will be limitations put on areas that they can go. For instance, uh, a kid with uh, a gang-related case in the Mission District, um, it's not unusual for him to have a stay-away order uh, with, with very, very broad parameters. Uh, north side, 14th Street, south side, Cesar Chavez, uh, east side, Guerrero, west side, Petrero. In other words, this whole wonderful part of this town is suddenly off limits to this kid because he got in trouble when he was wearing blue or red. The last thing that I want to talk about before we start talking to the panel is registration. Um, this is the last consequence. Uh, I talked a little bit about Penal Code Section 186.22. Um, you all remember when Proposition 21 came in. Um, as an aside, Proposition 21 almost, always kind of warms my heart because that's <clears throat> I was so gratified by what I saw of youth in the high school standing up and protesting 
and telling people, this is bad, we need to do something about that. There was an incredibly positive response, and that's something, that's an, that's an energy we all have to learn how to harness and how to, how to feed off of. One of the things that Proposition 21 did is it added a gang registration component. Um, people who are convicted of sex crimes, they have to register for the rest of their life. Wherever they live, they have to go down to the local police station, say, hi, I'm Greg, I committed a sex crime, uh, this is where I live. That way the police can monitor where they are. Um, this also happens with people with drug offenses. We now have registration for kids, or adults, who are convicted uh, in gang cases. If you are convicted either of a gang charge or a charge that involves some type of gang overtones, the judge can actually order you to register. And then it's the same situation. For the next five years of your life, you have that badge of honor. You have to go to the police station wherever you live, tell them who you are, what you were convicted of. If you move, you've got to go ahead and let people know where you moved to. If you don't, that's a crime unto itself. Um, so that's it. That's kind of my intro here. And I'm going to start having these great minds here start tell us what, telling us what they know. Uh, we are very lucky to have Juniper Lesnick here today. Juniper works for the ACLU. Um, she has been instrumental in the fight against the gang injunctions. Um, I know the gang injunctions are something that's new to a lot of us, so uh, Juniper is going to tell us a little bit about what they are and uh, how they're affecting our youth and what is being done to try to stop them. Juniper. Good morning, everyone. I'm Juniper Lesnick. As Greg said, I'm an attorney at the ACLU. And in addition to doing work to oppose gang injunctions, my primary focus is on youth rights in public schools. So I do a, a lot of work in the schools as well. Um, I want to talk to you about two things briefly. And I'm going to try to move through a lot of information fairly quickly. So if you have questions afterwards, I'm happy to answer them. The first is gang injunctions, what they are, how they work, and what we've done to try to oppose them. The second thing is gang profiling by the police on public school campuses, something that we're seeing more and more of. So first, gang injunctions. Gang injunctions started in LA in the 80s. There are now over 50 gang injunctions in LA County they're based on the public nuisance doctrine, which is something that's been used in, to get injunctions in other contexts, like you may have heard of injunctions for abortion protesters outside abortion clinics or labor protests, et cetera. Um, so district attorneys had this idea to use that doctrine to get injunctions against criminal street gangs. The way the doctrine works is um, it's based, you have to show that uh, a group of people or, or um, some individuals are causing a substantial and unreasonable interference in community interests. So what district attorneys started doing, city attorneys in the case of the San Francisco um, injunction, was putting together cases against criminal street gangs showing that these groups of individuals are um, doing graffiti, drugs, selling drugs, loitering, staying out late, trespassing, this whole list of grievances that interfered with residents in a particular area. Um, the, the, I'm not going to talk too much about the legal process of how district attorneys go through to get an order from a court, but I will talk a little bit about what those orders end up looking like. They impose restrictions typically on the gang itself, 
and sometimes individuals are named on the front end, but it leaves it open so that police can later decide who members of that gang are and serve people who had no idea they would be bound by this order with a copy of the injunction which then binds them. And what it means to be served with an injunction, every injunction is different, but they typically have uh, terms like um, you can't associate with other gang members within the area affected by the injunction or alleged gang members sometimes. Um, you can't trespass. You can't, um, sometimes you can't be in the presence of alcohol, which means if there are restaurants or public parks where people are having barbecues or parties on the front lawn, that people served with the injunction are not allowed to be present or they'll be found in violation of it. There are all kinds of, um, of terms that these injunctions uh, have imposed, including curfews, things like that, that um, impose pretty um, intrusive restrictions on people's freedom of movement and their association with each other within um, what are typically called safety zones, although we usually call them target zones. Um, so if, if once someone is uh, served with an injunction, if they're found to be violating any of its terms, they can be arrested and charged with contempt, um, which is actually a criminal process. And this is one of the reasons that injunctions are so tricky, is that the, the process in court is a civil process, which means people aren't guaranteed counsel. So if anyone wants to oppose an injunction, they don't get a court-appointed attorney. They would have to either hire an attorney or appear on their own behalf. So that means that what often happens is that district attorneys file voluminous papers in court, usually declarations by police officers saying what a problem this gang is causing in this community, rarely accompanied by uh, declarations by community members about what they think. Um, and then no one appears to present another side of the story because either people don't even know this is happening or they would have to hire an attorney to appear, or they're afraid that to appear would mean that they are conceding that they're a gang member, which is something for obvious reasons people don't want to do in a court of law. So it's a very tricky process, and then the consequence on the back end can be a criminal prosecution. Um, so it's, it's a very tricky tactic that, um, that cities are using more and more. Um, so briefly, I'm going to go through three examples of injunctions. The first is a, an injunction that's um, the court case is called Acuna, and it was kind of the first big injunction case in Northern California. It was in San Jose in 1997, and the ACLU um, opposed this injunction on all kinds of constitutional grounds. We made lots of First Amendment arguments why this injunction violated people's civil rights and civil liberties including that the imposition, the restriction on association was an interference with people's freedom of association, that some of the terms were too vague or too broad. And unfortunately, we lost all of those arguments in the California Supreme Court, which means that it's hard, we can't really make those arguments again in the lower courts in California. So um, since then, what we've done, there's been um, many injunctions since, and there was an injunction against the Broderick Boys in West Sacramento. And just to give you a sense of how injunctions have evolved, the Acuna case covered a four-block area. And there was a lot of, they called this an urban war zone, and there actually was a lot of evidence of people snorting lines of cocaine off the hoods of cars and doing all kinds of things. 
um, and it, was a, it only affected this very small area. The West Sacramento injunction covered 80% of the city of West Sacramento and was served on over 80 people almost immediately after the court order was received, and it was a, um, by a default judgment because only one of the alleged 500 members of this alleged gang were, was served with notice of the proceeding. So nobody knew about it. The district attorney got the order by a default judgment, immediately went out and served all of these people with the injunction, covers 80% of the town. That particular injunction included the provision I mentioned of not being allowed to be in the presence of alcohol, which meant people couldn't go to barbecues, et cetera. Two or more people served couldn't be in the same place, so fathers who, whose sons played on the same little league teams couldn't both watch the game at the same time or attend practice. There was a curfew that didn't include um, exceptions for work or family emergencies. So we had a client, um, we got involved in this case and had a client who was arrested for contempt when he went to pick up his wife who doesn't drive and works the night shift. Um, so the Juniper, what's yeah. the expectation? Let's say you live in this target zone and you've lived there all your life and all of a sudden you're served an order, you're not allowed to come here anymore. What's the expectation of the people presenting these these injunctions. What's that person supposed to do? It's not so much that you aren't allowed to be in the neighborhood, but your movement within the neighborhood is highly restricted. So, um, I mean, the expectation of the of the city attorney or the district attorney is that, well, you're causing a nuisance, so you shouldn't be allowed to do these things anymore. Um, and you point out a problem, which is most of these injunctions don't have procedures in place for getting removed from the injunction. They're permanent, usually. So that means even if you cease to have any association with the gang, um, even if you move out of the neighborhood, people who are dead are still officially bound by some injunction. So that's something that's beginning to change. Um, in L.A., actually, they just for the this, a lot of community-based organizations have been doing advocacy for years trying to get an opt-out process for people who have been served with injunctions to be removed out from under their limitations. And it's just happening now so that um, people can petition and s for removal. Um, the district attorney's office is required to review each individual every three years to see if they're still actively participating in the gang, things like that. But I did want to mention, I, I know I'm talking a lot, I did want to mention about the Broderick Boys case that um, because only one person was served with the order, we challenged that on due process grounds, saying that the people affected by this court order were not given enough notice to come appear in court and present another side of the story or be heard by the court. And we lost at the trial court level, appear, appealed that decision, and just won in the California Court of Appeals. So that injunction is now void and doesn't exist anymore. So. That's a huge, um, it, was a, it was a really positive victory because that's never happened before. Um, so it, it set some protections in place for um, district attorneys who are seeking these injunctions that they have to do more to let people know what's going on and to give them an opportunity to appear and defend. Um, I know people probably want to hear about the Oakdale mob injunction. I'll just say that um, we... Um, also objected to that injunction on due process grounds in the court. Uh, the judge did order that more people receive notice in various ways. The injunction still went through. It's in place now. I'm happy to answer specific questions about it. Um, do I have time to talk about gang profiling? No.
You have been talking a lot less than you think you have. Really? Keep going. Okay. <laughs> this is good stuff. Good. Well, I, want, I did want to talk a little bit about gang profiling in schools. Um, as I mentioned, I do a lot of student rights work at the ACLU, and something that we're seeing more and more of is the following. I've had, um, in two years, maybe three or four cases that are very similar to what I'm about to describe. Police come onto campus, usually gang unit police officers, and work in conjunction with the SRO, who's stationed at the school, and usually at lunchtime, go out onto um, the, the school lunch area and round up a bunch of kids of color, usually Latino kids, um, get all of their information, photograph them, sometimes search them, go back to the police station and enter them into a gang database without having any, without um, claiming that this is under the auspices of any specific criminal investigation, without having any um, reasonable suspicion that each of the individuals they're contacting has broken the law. Um, and I'm, I'm actually working on a case like this now, and there are two parts of this that are very troubling. One is, at the beginning stages of our intervention around cases like this, police, the police departments typically have um, really misconstrued ideas of their freedom to do this, that um, gangs are a huge public safety problem, um, our, our students in our public schools are under threat, and so we have a responsibility to go onto campus and anyone who looks suspicious to us, which inevitably is groups of kids of color, um, usually male kids of color, um, we, uh, we owe it to the school community to know who they are. Um, that's the first thing that's troubling because obviously detaining kids for questioning, taking their photographs, these are all seizures under the Fourth Amendment that have very specific protocols in terms of when the police are allowed to do this, and it's being um, ignored fairly broadly. And the second thing is that um, it's just flat-out racial profiling. Um, you don't see the police going onto school campuses and approaching groups of white kids who are dressed similarly and hanging out together. Um, even when white kids are dressed identical, identically to um, the Latino kids who are being targeted. Um, so that's obviously extremely troubling. So I know there are some youth in the audience, and I just very briefly um, wanted to go over, because this is happening so widely, what to do if the police um, approach you. And I know um, many people in the audience probably are um, aware of basic kind of know your rights with the police um, steps. But just to go over them quickly, the first thing to do if the police approach you is to ask, am I free to leave? And if the um, officers say, yes, you should leave. If they say no, you're then officially being detained, which means rights kick in. They have to have reasonable suspicion to detain you for questioning, that you've broken a law, not that you're just suspicious. Um, the second thing to ask if, they, if, you are, um, if you're not free to leave is, am I under arrest? Because then a whole other level um, kicks in. You have to ha they have to have probable cause to believe that you've committed a crime in order to arrest you. Um, if you're not under either way, however that question is answered, these are the next couple of things to say, and then you don't really need to say anything else. The first is, I want to exercise my right to remain silent. If you're being detained um, for questioning by the police, you don't have to say anything except your name. 
Um, as Greg mentioned, the police are having a lot of success at getting kids to give up information, um, to roll up their sleeves and have their um, tattoos photographed, pull up their shirts, um, claim neighborhoods, which then back at the station become criminal street gangs, um, all kinds of things. So it's really important to, to exercise your right to remain silent. And if you get pressed to continue talking, you can always say, I don't want to talk to you until I have an attorney or a trusted adult present. Um, so those are the four basic steps. And the, only, the fifth thing I'd mention is when um, being talked to by the police, it's always very important to use your best judgment and not to do anything that might instigate the police to get violent um, because that's never a good situation. So we always recommend that you assert your rights but do so calmly um, and not in a way that could put you in any danger. Um, so just as a final point, at the beginning, Greg mentioned the, the war on gangs. And just like the war on drugs, um, which was really a tool to target and incarcerate people of color, the war on gangs is really operating very similarly. Um, interestingly, there's never been a gang injunction against a white gang, even though there are a lot of white gangs in the state of California. Don't let anybody fool you. They're out there. <laughs> Secondly, um, L.A. is the best example because there are so many injunctions there, and injunctions are not typically sought in the, in the most violent neighborhoods or the neighborhoods that are really being terrorized by violence. They're sought in neighborhoods that are bordering white or gentrifying neighborhoods. So it's very clear politically what's going on is either they're trying to push people of color out of the neighborhood by making it so hard to live there that people just want to leave, or they're trying to make a showing to the white community that they're, the you know, city is tough on crime and we've got this under control and you know, it's okay for you guys to move in and, and gentrify around here, you're safe. Um, and in the, in the context of schools, um, as I mentioned, you don't see police going to schools to target groups of kids wearing khaki pants and polo shirts. Um, and even more and more, um, what we see, for instance, the case I'm working on now, um, one of the groups of boys who was, and it's humiliating, it's embarrassing, it's confusing for young people when this happens. I, I'm working with a group of boys who are lined up against the wall in front of all of their peers photographed by the cops, accused of being gang members. All the while, four of them are wearing red, two of them are wearing blue, one of them is wearing brown. I mean, it's just not, there's nothing about this that's consistent with even what they claim is going on. So um, the, the racial profiling overtone of this is um, extremely troubling to us at the ACLU and, um, and part of why we're so committed to working on these issues. Thank you. And, and by the way, folks, the city attorneys were invited to come and speak and address their issues and why they're doing what they're doing, and they declined to come today. Uh, next up, next up, we've got Rene Quinones. Rene uh, is the director of Home ESF. Rene, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do first off? <clears throat> Thank you. Um, I'm honored to be here. Um, 
I got to acknowledge a lot of the, the homies that aren't here who have passed away due to gang violence and who are currently incarcerated um, due to their involvement in certain street organizations. I try to acknowledge them um, because I feel an obligation to to address them because there's a lot of our friends who will never see um, freedom as, as we define it. Um, so <clears throat> I think Junipero stated well, like just some of the tactics that law enforcement um, has used to just round up young people. Um, I think that when when we talk about the war on drugs and we talk about the war on on gangs, um, there's a larger issue that there's a there's an attack on on people of color and specifically young people of color. Um, so what Homie does specifically is we do a lot of prevention and intervention within the high schools and in our community. We specifically target high-risk youth. We don't ever identify our young people as gang youth. We don't ever affiliate them with specific street organizations um, or associate them with specific street groups. Um, I think that there's already a system that that attacks our young people, and we don't want any part of it. So as an agency, we choose not to work with any law enforcement entities. We don't work with any initiatives that we feel um, can compromise the freedom and the safety of our young people. Um, and so I've, because of that, I've been, I've been accused of being an extremist or being too radical um, because they expect me to work within a system that historically attacked our communities, and to this day I deal with trauma. I can't, I can't see law enforcement without sweating. Um, I can't be in the same room with law enforcement and be comfortable. Um, as a young person at the age of 12, uh, I found opportunities, um, my own economic opportunities in the community by, by way of those street organizations. I also found a lot of social support, um, family support that I didn't have at home. Um, and in general, my reasons, I mean, we can go into all the theoretical reasons why young people join gangs, but in general, I like to say that as a community and a society, we're failing our young people, and that's why they're finding their ways to the street. Um, so at, at Homie, what we try to do is provide uh, social, a social support system, try to provide economic opportunities, and try to educate our young people because the education here in this country and in the state in particular is deplorable. Um, it's pathetic how we pretend to be educating our young people when 50% of our young people are dropping out of high school. Um, I mean, we can go on and on. I, I think that my purpose for coming here today, and I, I've been asked many times by our communities to start taking public positions, and I think that this is like one of our first attempts, is to try to educate as many service providers that are out there um, to ask our young people not to ever self-identify and to really educate them on the, the long-term legal implications that being affiliated or being labeled as a gang member can have on their entire life. Um, and I'm going to use my example. I was, uh, like I mentioned earlier, about 12 or 13 years old when I first started hanging out with some of the older guys in our community, some of the guys that were providing that support for me. Um, and up until about I, was, I was 17 years old, I had uh, numerous contacts with law enforcement for various, you know, nuisances or crimes. Um, and at 17, I was, I was on the verge of going to California Youth Authority, and some of my friends had already gone there. And so some of the stories that they were telling me, um, you know, were, were rather scary when you think about it. I mean, constant fighting, you constantly have to, you know, it was, I mean, the, the name in the community was that was gladiator school and it prepared you for prison. Um, and being young, because I, I, a lot of the friends I, I associated with, they had already gone into the system and 
they kind of prepared me as best they could, I guess, right? Um, and so I wasn't really afraid of going into the system, but at that time I had a child, which, you know, definitely changed my my understanding and my perception of what, what being a father meant to me, not having a father um, and being raised without a father. I, I felt that I, I had an obligation to my son to be there for him. And so I started to, to change certain things about my life, and, and definitely hanging out on the street corner was one of them. Um, and so I didn't have any police contact at all um, with I mean, it's from the age of 17 to about 23. And at 23 years old, six years after my last contact, I, I picked up a, a federal drug indictment. Um, and that's a whole other story that, I mean, it was really stressful. You know, the, the, first, the first conversations I had with law enforcement were, you're not going to see your children grow up. You're going to get 15, 17 years, you know, automatically. And we know all about you. I mean, it was, and you know, my whole position was, I'm not, commu- I'm not cooperating with you. I have nothing to say to you. Um, and in the course of my investigation, they pulled out my gang file, and had no law enforcement contact whatsoever. And they pulled it out. And it must have been. I mean, there was no way they could put any more documentation in that file. I mean, it was incredible the amount of information that they had, and I just could not understand how they track so much of myself and of the, the some of the people that I associated with. So one of my one of my conditions after my trial and after I came home was that I couldn't associate with gang members. Well, that meant half of my family. That meant all the guys I grew up with. That meant the majority of people that lived in the mission district that were my age and that I knew. I couldn't I couldn't speak or associate with them. Um, and and so it was kind of scary to think that, you know, there's some people, there's families who are being separated by these indictments and these conditions. There's, there's communities that are, that, are, that are being split right in half because of these, just these attacks. And so I come from a perspective that, you know, I'm not, I understand the, the purpose of law enforcement in our communities. It's to, to contain and separate the have-nots from the haves. I understand that the reasons why young people, we want to talk about public nuisance. I think poverty is a public nuisance. I think, I think in this country to have a lack of resources is a public nuisance. I think that the poor education is a public nuisance. And I think that, you know, we, we are fed by the media to be scared of our young people and to be scared of these street organizations that we ourselves create because we are not addressing the needs of our community. And so I tell, I tell, I'm here just to basically tell the teachers, the educators, the counselors, the, the service providers, that whatever you can, always remind young people that it's not their fault that they're ending up on the street. And that as a community, you not only have a responsibility, but an obligation to protect their best interests. Don't self-identify. Don't admit to anything with law enforcement. Um, because one of the things I wanted to mention, law enforcement, they, they can do whatever they want, especially the gang task force. They have probably the most, they have probably the most power within our community. Um, they, they coerce young people by offering them incentives, um, by threatening them, and if they don't cooperate, then there's retribution. 
I have seen it. I mean, it's 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 clear cut with us and in my specific condition that when when folks within our community did not cooperate with law enforcement, there was some action taken. Maybe not immediately, but within the next week, two weeks, months. Um, as a young person at 15 years old, I've, I had my house raided at least three or four times. It was like the joke in the neighborhood. Every time that the cops come in, they were going straight to my house. Um, we'd all be outside, and, and basically the gate was open, go do what you got to do, um, because that was an attack on me because I would not, you know, talk with them. Um, the pictures, the same thing. I mean, we were forced to take pictures. They told us, they threatened our parents that your, your son is a gang member, and if, we don't, if, if you don't allow us to take this picture, um, we're going to go inside your house and destroy it like we did the week before. And so you kind of just like, well, all right, we'll take your picture, you know. Um, and as a young person, you don't understand that it's going to be used in the court of law against you, you know, five, six years later, like in my case. Um, so I, I just, I mean, I just want people to, to take, start taking the position that we have an obligation to our young people to protect their interests and their rights. And most oftentimes, our young people trample on their own, on their own rights because they, they have no idea of what, what those initiatives or the laws, um, what type of implications they have. And so if we can educate our young people as much as possible, I think that that would be the first step in addressing this because we need to empower young people as much as possible um, and, and allow them to understand that, you know, they have the potential to make change. And I think that that's one of this, you know, the, you know, people that have and people in political positions, that's one of their largest fears, that young people have the potential to change these systems that are beneficial and are comfortable for them, but not necessarily us who live in these communities that don't have the resources, that have the poor education, who are, and who are living in poverty in the richest nation in the world. Right. Thank you, Renee. As I said before, Marcy is now a uh, youth advocate in my office, and I got to say, I was absolutely tickle pink when you got hired. I knew Marcy from the years that she worked at CARC, and uh, she's a wonderful addition to our office. Marcy, what are you seeing out there? So, um, my name is Marcy. I've been working for the Public Defender's Office for a little over seven months, but I've been working with high risk kids for about 10 years. Um, I grew up in the Mission District, uh, <coughs> you know, have a history with that. Um, but I wanted to share with you guys what. Um, what leads up to the injunctments? Um, I had a young lady that was arrested at school for a basic fight, but it turned into a gang fight because she was known for wearing red. This kid was not affiliated, had friends, but was not self-identified as a gang member. So she gets arrested. She gets booked, um, not only for the fight, but for gang enhancements because it was a gang fight, Norteños against Sureños. Um, she comes in. Later on, those charges do get dropped because they didn't have sufficient evidence to prove that she was an identified gang member. But the school knows that she was arrested for a gang fight, so now the school's labeling her. So now this kid can't go back to the school because she's a threat to the other kids. Um, that part happens. The police are labeling this young lady as well. Um, I end up working with this kid, get her into another school. She's not a gang member, but she does have friends. Um, so it starts off with little, little things just like that, just somebody labeling you that blow up. Um, this kid has been seen on 24th, so I'm sure that the gang task force, they're out there. They're probably taking a picture of her, just talking to the guys, talking to the girls, whatever it is that she's doing. But they are already creating a file on this kid that if this kid decides to take the wrong turn later on, they'll pull that like they did for Renee, and they'll use it against her. So 
What I did with that is I, I gave her the one-on-one -on -one about a little bit about my history, what I did, how she can avoid being labeled, um, and what are the consequences that come with just hanging around with these people and you're not really part of it. Um, a lot of the kids that come, you know, that live in the community, I'll use Mission District 24th Street, that live there, a lot of them, what they tend to do, it's like they see the culture that's out there, they want to fit in, they know that if I wear red, I'm not going to get harassed by the guys on the corner because they're going to know that I'm cool. Now, if I don't wear red, I'm going to get harassed every day I come home, and I, this is my route home, and this is where I live, so I'm going to have to deal with these people. So they choose to wear the color just to feel safe. But at the flip side, there goes the gang task force. They're out there trying to see what new kids are out there, what are they doing to build files against these kids. So they won't get harassed by their peers, but now they're getting harassed by the cops. If they happen to be walking while a group of kids are getting you know, stopped for whatever it is, it, they won't t think twice before they pull this kid in to ask them information about what are they doing out here, why are they wearing red. Now this kid is labeled as a gang member. There's another part to that as well, too. The kid that walks home on that route every day because that's the, the route they take. The Sudanos roll around and see this kid out there. The Sudanos are not going to sit and take the time to question, oh, are you a Norteño? No. We see you out there. Now this kid not has to work. Not only does he have to worry about the police harassing, this kid now has to worry about the Sudanos catching him on his own because they've seen him out there. He wears the red so he won't get harassed by his peers that live in his community, but now he has to worry about the Sudanos getting him on, you know, when he's by himself. School, but you need to educate them that it goes far beyond just the school labeling you. It's something that can follow you and can you know, at the end could catch up to you and set you up for something a whole lot worse than what your situation is. As with this girl that got into the fight, it was just going to be a fight. But if she would have never wore red, if she was known for wearing pink, that gang charge would have never been there. They probably would have handled it at school and did some conflict mediation. But no, since it was a gang kid that was known for wearing red, they took it to the next level. Mm. And that's the way that a lot of the school districts, a lot of the officials at school deal with these kind of kids. I work with nothing but girls. And I... And it's time over time that these kids, the school, I go and meet with the counselors, and it never fails that they're like, well, I think she's, you know, she's indulging in that gang life because I, she's wearing red. <laughs> like, I wear red, you know, a, a lot of the times, you know, and I don't hang out. I don't, you know, I, if I walk down 24th, it's, you know, high by. But I know if I was to take the time to hang out there, I wouldn't be surprised if a police officer came up to me and asked me, you know, what am I doing out there, you know, just because of the color you, you wear. So if you can just educate your, your uh, youth and let them know that, you know, what's really out there, what, what happens when um, the police stop them and ask them questions, the great points you set out that um, Patty has been working real hard to, you know, put out there that if a police stops you, you have a right. Tell them you want legal representation so they won't um, in, um, incriminate themselves. So. I've always envisioned. I've always envisioned, I've had this idea that if we could get banners at the main entrances to schools, <laughs> big old banner, it says, you have the right to remain silent. <laughs> Mike, we miss you up at YGC. Tell us about what you're doing now and, and what you're seeing out there. Um, my name is Mike Texel. I'm with the Wraparound Project at San Francisco General. I deal with a lot of the uh, trauma patients that come through, stab victims and also shot victims. Uh, this city is really in need. Uh, help services, just a lot of folks need to get involved. The departments, and I mean, it's, uh, we know gangs exist. We know they're here. But what I would like to see more of 
is folks to uh, when an altercation happens is to bring them folks together, sit them down, get to the root of the problem because there's not enough of that going on out here in this city. And uh, a lot of the victims that come through the hospital there, I mean, that's a moment to where some of them really want to change their life. So all the times that I go to their bed sites and talk to them and stuff like that, I have found that a lot of the guys really just need some help and some support from folks to put them in position. And until everybody plays a role and get out in these trenches and get at these folks and stop being scared of these guys, whether they're carrying guns or whatever the fact, that's the only way we're going to be able to change the city. Thank you, Mike. And Sean Richards, like I said, the originator, the, uh, the director of uh, Brothers Against Guns. What are you seeing out there, Sean? Well, I, I'm not the originator. Jackie is. Jack Jaguar. Where you at? <laughs> there you go. I always got to acknowledge him. That's the originator. Um, real quick, I want to say, you know, two things. When I first met Jeff Adachi, our first conversation was, don't railroad the kids. Be for them. Don't be against them. He kept his word. So y'all give that man a hand. Also want to speak on the gang injunction. It's something that came to my attention a couple of days ago is that it's bigger than just what's going on with this gang injunction stuff. It's real big. And I don't think you guys really understand what's really going on and why did they target Oakdale first. Because if you notice, we have that big old shipyard that's being built. And what, what rolls right through that shipyard, Navy Road, that gate back there. So I want you guys to think about that. That's real big. So if we take out Oakdale first, we get these youngsters off these blocks, then we can clean that back up, build houses, because we don't want these ghetto, knucklehead youngsters tearing up the new environment that we're building. And that's what's going on. That's the bigger picture. It's, it's, bigger, than, it's bigger than us. The other thing is, too, is that these schools have really failed our kids. Closing schools is not cool. Because now you got kids going all over the city, the schools, dealing with beef. Why? Because I was one. Graduated from Balboa High School, Melbourne Fillmore. My mother sent me there because the trouble that I would have got into going to Mission, going to Washington, going to Gal, because I had family members there. So she sent me way to Balboa. She's not knowing about the beef that I was in, the gangs and all the other stuff. She's not knowing all that. There's been many times I had to get on the phone and call my cousin Victor. Hey, Vic, I need you to come out here, man. Bring some of the fellas because I got a problem. But see, that's what's happening is that we roll on these kids by shutting down their opportunities. We say we got jobs for them. Do we really have jobs for them? No. We pay them a little chunk change to do what we want them to do, two hours a day, four hours a day. That, that's pacifying the situation. We need to stop playing. For real. One of the things that I see that what we can really step up and do, and let me just say before I mention that, because I want to always acknowledge my staff, because my staff, you know, see, this is, the, this is the problem that a lot of people have and a lot of organizations have. Is because, you know what I'm saying? When you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're telling the truth, it hurts. See, it, 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 
I don't care what anybody say. I know what my staff does every single day. I, might, I don't micromanage them, but I know what they do. And I know that BAG is out there along with minor players, straightforward club, and all the other organizations that's out there bending their backs over, putting in hard work. Everybody got to step up to the plate. It ain't just a couple organizations. It ain't just Sean. It's not just Jack. It's everybody. We say we tired of it, then let's be tired of it and do something about it. See, we got all these witness protection programs that we talk about. What are we really doing? We really setting these kids up to fail, get killed, and all that other stuff that's going on. One of the things that Brothers Against Guns do in the community, we're not just in the schools. I mean, we got funded through DCYF to be in two schools. Wow. That's fine. We'll do the work. But you know what? There's other schools calling us. There's other schools saying, we want your service. What we do, we attack those schools. We're in like nine different schools right now and only funded to do two. So we don't know. No, don't applaud. Don't applaud because that's what we're supposed to do for these babies out here. These babies are dying. They're scared. They're scared to walk the streets. They're scared to go places because they don't know what's going to happen to them. But that's what we're supposed to do. We're in court every day with these youngsters, every day. Fighting for him to get out. Sometimes me and Jack get into it about why you advocate for him to get out. Because he need to get out, man. So we can educate him on what he needs to do so he don't go back. That's what it's about. Lacing him with a lot of game. That's what it's about. Lacing them with a lot of game, giving them knowledge, and showing them the right way. Because when we was coming up, we didn't have all that. We had a few more programs. I'm going to tell you like this. If it wasn't for me being part of the Omega Boys Club when it first started, I wouldn't be where I'm at right now. Omega Boys Club gave me a conscience. I'm one of the first eight when it first started. You read Dr. Marshall's book, I'm in that book. I'm one of the first eight. If they gave me a conscience, same way when you guys was young and your mamas took you to church, and they told you, and the preacher talking to you, you think the preacher talking to you when he tell you, you should not be stealing, and you just stole something earlier that day? You thinking about that, wow, that's me. Your conscience kick in. So that's what we have to start doing, educating these young folks, giving them a conscience. Not just, on, not just that, being in the streets, being in the community, being in the field. Stop being scared of these youngsters, like Mike said. If you're scared, get out the business. If you're scared, get out the business because you're taking up space for the next person that want to do the work. See, one thing I'm happy about because, as Greg said, I'm happy to know that we got some folks from the community that now work for the city. I'm happy about that because they're going to vouch and roll with us till the wheels fall off because they've been there. And if they don't, what we do? We call them on it. That was once where I was at. So that's what I'm proud about. As Marcy said, she worked for the city now, but she used to be in the community. Same thing like with Jessica. Worked for the city now, used to be in the community. Same thing with Mike. Mike used to work for BAG. He moved on to UCSF. I'm proud of that. This is a stepping stone. We all must grow, and that's what we got to teach our young folks. This is a stepping stone. Profiling, all that other stuff, you get beyond that and you move forward. We got to educate them and show them guidance. See, I know my time is limited. I'm going to shut up because I get passionate about this. No worries. You know, like 
I'm, I'm for real with this. You know, it ain't about no money with me. I've done this for 12 years. Brothers Against Guns been existing for 12 years. For the first six years, for those that don't know, I've done this with no money. I stepped on the toes of a lot of our so-called leaders in the black community. I stepped on their toes. I told them to go to hell. I don't want to hear that shit. My young folks, we dying out here. We going to the penitentiary. We doing calendar days that, that's just rolling over consistently. And the, and, and the bottom line is, is that stepping up to the plate and, and showing that this is real. Because I lost my brother. Easter Sunday of 1995. I lost my little brother. Four years later, my second little brother got killed. I take this personally. This ain't about no money with me. This ain't about big business. This is about saving lives. We don't do this, and Brothers Against Guns, and I tell my staff all the time, we don't do this for numbers. We do this for quality of life. This is a public health situation. And so we all start coming together and realizing that this is for real. Get involved now. Don't wait till it's one of your family members or it's your baby. Get involved now. Because then you'll already be prepared to deal with the situation and you'll be able to roll with it. Don't wait and say, well, you know, I'm going to just help out. Get involved. And this is for real with me. And I, and I say that because everybody that worked for me, I trained them individually. I trained them personally, myself. And I tell them, don't come work for me if it's about money. This is nonprofit. We do not make a lot of money here. Don't come work for me if it's about money. Come work for Brothers Against Guns because you're sincere and you're real about this. Because these youngsters feel you when you're sincere and real. They know you when you're fake and phony. Trust me. We got hundreds of kids that we work with. And every last one of them, and as me being the executive director, the owner of this organization, I can stand here and tell you I know every last one of my kids personally. Because I work with them. I drop them off at home every single night. I run programs as me being the executive director. I run programs because that's just me. Get involved. Stop sitting back in your office and saying, okay, well, you know, my staff would do that. Because your staff is not you. So that's what I wanted to say. You know, I apologize if I offended anybody, if I say anything personal to anybody. Don't take it personal. It's just business. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> Folks, we're running low on time, uh, so we're going to throw it open to you for some questions. I got some great brains up here, so uh, let's hit them with some questions. Hi, um, this one's for J Juniper. Um, I'm having a lot of kids come through with, with the gang enhancements talking about the DNA swabs. Are you hearing anything about that, or is that something new? And my other question is, I know that down in L.A., a lot of the solutions are set up with the, the uh, churches and the faith-based groups. Are there any networks up here that are, like, being formed, or is there somewhere we can send some of these kids? Um, I'll do my best to talk about both, but if anyone else on the panel has answers to either of those questions, please jump in. I don't know that much about DNA swabbing. What I know is that there's um, 
increasing collaboration between local law enforcement and the feds and that one way that that's being supported is creating databases that are more extensive and include things like DNA. You know, there's, it's, DNA testing is, um, has increasingly become a part of law enforcement work, sometimes in a beneficial way to um, exonerate people who have been falsely accused, um, but now we're seeing it used in other ways. Does anyone else Let me talk about, about uh, DNA just for a second to answer your question. Um, we now have a law in California. Any adult that pleads guilty to a felony, any juvenile that admits a felony is mandated by law to give a DNA sample. They will have their cheeks swabbed and that information will be put in a database. They're going to need a big computer. <laughs> um, we have one question here. Um, Go ahead. Jennifer, a suggestion for the ACLU, because you have the resources to take on a task of this size. When I was a child, which was before any of you were born, I remember vividly having citizenship training classes in junior high school and high school in which citizenship rights as an American citizen were explained in a classroom setting to the young people, the children, as a part of their, quote, education. Somehow that training has evaporated. Now, of course, the other side of that coin is there was a fellow who said he believed in government of the people, by the people, for the people, who got his brains blown out for taking that position. But the ACLU has the kind of reach to begin pushing for the reinstallation of citizenship training in the schools, which is where it needs to be. I appreciate that. I, you know, I was a teacher before I was a lawyer and um, a teacher of high-risk youth in Oakland uh, at schools where kids got kicked out of public schools for violent behavior and, um, and tried to incorporate that as a teacher and felt um, that there was a real lack. And I just want you to know that we do have a, um, a youth project at the ACLU called the Friedman Project that does a lot of Know Your Rights trainings in schools. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't have enough capacity to do it in all schools that need it, but your suggestion is well taken and something that I support. Uh, I recently read the document from what happened with Los Angeles with the, with the gang has, for instance, the victories of the community went out there. And I was wondering if the ACLU or the Public Defender's Office is going to implement those, those same type of things that they want in L.A. here in San Francisco against the enhancements that are going on in the Mission District and Hunters Point specifically. You know, people are really organized in LA because this is um, so widespread there. And um, and the, vi the victory they just got in terms of setting up an opt-out procedure is huge. Um, and I do hope that people follow suit up here. You know, that even though we're a big organization, our, our resources are limited and depend a lot on, on community organizing, on people getting together and advocating and using the political process, using their voices to, to fight for those kinds of changes. That's how it happened in LA. It wasn't a bunch of lawyers sitting in their offices. It was people joining together and saying, we need to make some changes to the way these injunctions work because it's just not just how, I mean, they're not just period, but the way they work are particularly um, unfair. So I encourage people to organize and, and advocate for an opt-out procedure of the Oakdale mob injunction and also to make that a standard part of any future injunctions in the city of San Francisco. It's a great idea. 
Um, I should mention that the current injunction in San Francisco applies only to adults. However, it's not a far reach uh, as the officers go around the uh, neighborhood to um, break up young men on a street corner and they may nab a young person and you know search them and find um, contraband on them and then bring them in and then that young man may get a uh, gang uh, jacket. So, so you do have to be very careful that although this gang injunction in San Francisco applies to adults, I think in all likelihood that it will eventually reach our youth. And, and I think Juniper talked about that with the uh, gang identification uh, in the schools. But we have one last question here. And then I do hope you all remain here because we have some incredible awards that we want to give to people that are so deserving and have worked very hard uh, in advocating for our young people. And so one more question. Uh, actually, I don't have a question. I have a comment. I appreciate everybody's work here and sharing the information. But what, I work for a CYC committee. San Francisco, for me, I deal with a lot of immigrant youth. Well, one of the things about a gun, uh, the gang injunction and the criminal justice system is uh, I, want, I want everybody to remember about the immigrants who came to this country because a lot of times they're being targeted right now because mm -hmm. especially the gang members, once they finish their, life, their sentence <coughs> in the prisons, they're going to go to, straight to the detention center because of 1996 anti-immigration reform law. So I want people to know that once they, it's not over once they finish their penitentiary time. They're going to go straight to detention and get deported. So these are something that we need to educate our youth about and our family about and our community about and continue to speak out against that. Thank you. Before we go, folks, uh, Sean wants to put another word into us. I think real quick, like two, two more questions real quick, if that's possible. Patty? Yeah, yeah. Well, Jack, you don't need a microphone. Jack, need a microphone? Uh, well, can I say something? I was like, uh, my name is Will Corpus. I work for the OMI Excelsior Vegan Program, and I'm here with the United Players and Taylor May Program. Uh, basically, I want to commend everybody that's on the panel and who is doing this work, because this work is hard. It doesn't stop, you know what I'm saying, when everybody takes a break, summer vacation. This is 24-7, all day, every day. And as we talk about gang injunction, we all know, man, the police is the biggest gang out here, y'all. You know what I'm saying? So let's get a junction on there, man. I just want to say quickly, Oak, uh, Oakdale Junction is just another piece of the genocide. You see, we got genocide in San Francisco. Right. And uh, yesterday at the Board of Supervisors, Lennar Corporation plus the politicians with, you know, their greed and the supervisors passed nine to two to give all the candlesticks to the Lennar Corporation. Ye and Daly were the only two that voted against it. So you got to be aware of this thing going on day by day, hour by hour. Like Sean said, you got to do something about it. Genocide is very well and alive in San Francisco. Feel that. It's not academic anymore. Got to do some work if you want to save the city. I thank Jeff for putting this together. It's a good show. So one of the things I wanted to say is, that it's just a comment, but like, how do we as communities of colors unite to really organize? Somebody said that the police is the biggest gang. We are stronger together than divided, and one of the tactics that they're using right now is trying to divide us. And so we need to come together to really unite. 
um, African-American communities, Latino communities, and Asian communities um, to really fight against them. So. Hey, folks, uh, Juniper brought in a fact sheet about injunctions. There's a big old stack of them by the door. And uh, take one with you. And love your so kids. Real quick, I just want to make a, a quick comment. Is that today, earlier, it was a press conference. I don't know if you guys was aware of this press conference that about a gun policy that's, you know, controlling the guns. They want young men or whoever it is to register their guns with the city and county uh, police department. So check out the news. The other thing is I want to say to you guys, I don't know if you guys heard of the community peace plan from Jim Queen. He probably some of your, been in your ear pushing this. And I kind of like had a chance to read this last night. And, I, and, and, I, and as I told Jim before, I wasn't really with this. And after me reading this, I'm with it. So if you guys want to check this out, support it, get in touch with Jim Queen. It's the community peace plan. It's for real. And it's basically supporting the CBOs in the community that's doing the work every day. So I just want to promote that and push that out there so you guys understand that it's for real. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. I am asking that our panelists remain here, and I want to thank them for their incredible and very passionate comments. I want to thank Greg Feldman for all of his work on this panel. I want to call Sue Burrell up to the stage and Zachary Norris from Books Not Bars. And I, I believe we have a little video. We're here to say that we can't wait anymore. We need to shut this facility down. There's no reason to keep it open. Um, and so it's really going to take us, all of us out here, um, to really make the state wake up and take action. We formed Books Not Bars to fight for youth opportunities instead of youth incarceration. The incarceration industry is the barrier between these young people and the lives they deserve to live. We should spend more money lifting our kids up than locking our Um, and the kids who um, have problems, who've gotten into trouble, those are the young people who deserve the most care, um, the most love, the most support, um, and yet they get the least of it. It wasn't long before we started hearing horror stories about California's youth prisons. Horror stories from parents who would go visit their children and find their children covered with bruises, seeing their kids totally despondent, living in fear, fighting for their survival. We were hearing these stories over and over again. And I was told by the judge in Fresno County that he was going into the Youth Authority for rehabilitation. And he was going to get the programs that I fought in the school systems to get. He has gotten none of that. Families of incarcerated youth are really excluded from the process. Families aren't consulted about what works for their kids. Families aren't consulted about how they could be involved in helping their young people get their lives on track. We started off in meetings with two or three staff people, two or three parents, sitting around talking, imagining what it would look like to get more parents there, more supporters there, more allies there. We had no idea overnight we would be hearing from parents all across the state. Overnight, people would be calling our office saying, we want to get involved, what can we do? Books Not Bars is really the, the little engine that could that's really what our story is. We started off with this very simple idea. We would just show 
the public that we were spending more money hurting kids and helping kids. We're the only statewide agency in California that gets the parents of kids who are incarcerated face-to-face -face with the elected officials and the government officials that can do something about these conditions. Um, what you have to understand with our parents is their kids are locked up right now. Every time they speak out, they conceivably could be putting their kids at risk. So that's the beauty of, I think, the Books Not Bars parents. So these are parents who not only are taking a stand for themselves, they're really doing so at, with some risk to their own flesh and blood, but they're doing it for the higher cause. And I don't, I don't, I refuse to see one penny going. Ten institutions for young criminals to be shut down. If I would have known now, four years ago, that my son was going to be put through the stuff he's been put through, I would have fought tooth and nail to not let him go there. I've had people in the system tell me to give up on my son. I've literally had the uh, court system tell me to just give up on him and let him go. That system was dysfunctional before my child died. Nevertheless, it, it continues to go on. Then he would tell me how, how, they, how they, they pit blacks against whites and Mexicans against Mexicans and this and that and how they have their beat down and mason. They would strip the person naked with no clothes at all, no socks, no boxers, nothing, and put them in a cell by themselves with a blanket, with like one of these thick wool blankets to wear and nothing else. You know what it's like, you know, leaving and telling your kid, do what you have to do to survive. Meanwhile, that's rehabilitation. We are not going away, that's for sure. We are not going away. We will, we will be saying these things until there is real change. Once we learned about the California Youth Authority monster, we decided to build a campaign. And when we decided to build a campaign, we thought, well, we could spend some time trying to reform this thing. But let's be clear, this is a monster that needs to be slayed. We need to get rid of California's abusive and costly youth prisons. Something so big and so monstrous needed something as big to fight it. Hundreds of activists and relatives of prisoners of the California Youth Authority united across the state tonight to demand reforms. Dozens gathered at Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland for a rally and a vigil that was organized by a San Francisco-based juvenile justice campaign called Books Not Bars. Hit it! Books Not Bars. Books Not Bars. Books Not Bars. Books Not Bars organization. Members with a group called Books Not Bars organized the event. The leaders of the organization Books Not Bars say they'll continue the fight to close down the California Youth Authority. More than 200 families are backing the statewide effort.
we're in the California Corridor right now, the only way to actually put this plan into action is to actually close these prisons. Today we have three, four hundred people showing up at our events and everyone knows our name. Oh, Books Not Bars, they're the organization that's fighting to close the CYA youth prisons. Prison reform advocates are now pushing for the state to make changes to the California Youth Authority. Parents, advocates, and former wards today asked the state to dump its current system and instead follow Missouri's example of eliminating youth authority prisons in favor of small community-based group homes. Parents want lawmakers to replace the current system with smaller community-based programs. Programs focused on education, treatment, and rehabilitation. California needs to go back to the drawing board, close down these warehouses of abuse, and open up regional rehabilitation centers that can actually offer the support and the intensive services that these young people need. We've managed to really get the attention of decision makers in the state, but now's the time to go from attention to action. We have seen the debate change, we've seen the possibilities open up, but we still have eight abusive and costly youth prisons ruining the lives of young people in the state of California. As long as those prisons are open, we haven't won. Whenever I'm at a Books Not Bars rally or an event, and I look into the eyes of the mothers, I look into the eyes of the children who have siblings who are locked up, um, I think to myself, you know, there is absolutely no way, left, right, or center, that anyone can justify the level of money that's being spent and the amount of damage that's being caused. This is not a left, right, or center issue. This is a basic human common sense issue. You don't spend money adding damage to damage. You spend money uh, helping a situation, healing a situation. If we can't do that for our children, we definitely can't do it for each other. We've got to start, first of all, rescuing these kids. Because of the strength of the families that we work with, the young people that we work with, 
we've made a huge impact on the state of California. Our work is not over. We need the governor and the legislature to know that everyone in the state of California wants the youth prisons closed and a new system built where young people are lifted up instead of locked down. That's pretty powerful. And um, DJJ is a monolithic institution that seems to absorb millions of our taxpayer dollars. And then they spit out our young people. And they spit them out abused, um, shell-shocked, and definitely gang-identified. And with a, a recidivism, recidivism rate of over 70%. I am so honored um, to present this award to Books Not Bars. We have Zachary Norris here. And you saw it all on the film, but I thank Books Not Bars for confronting the impossible and, the, and confronting the big powerful problem. Books Not Bars did it smartly. They organized families. They educated the, the stakeholders. They didn't just complain, but they acted, and they continued to act. And then they implemented, and they worked tirelessly. So Books Not Bars, thank you for the audacity to believe, and thank you for giving the hope to our youth and families in DJJ. Um, it's an honor uh, to receive this award from the San Francisco Public Defenders. My name is Zachary Norris. I'm the co-director at Books Not Bars. But mostly it's an honor to be among a group of people who give a damn and to be amongst a group of folks and panelists who clearly give a damn and are out, out there fighting day in and day out. I'm here with my co-worker and fellow organizer, Lourdes Duarte. Um, I accept this award on behalf of Joyce Cook, who's another um, family organizer, on behalf of Jakara Imani, who's now the executive director at, at Books Not Bars, Lenore Anderson, who's at the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice now. Um, and so on behalf of the team, I thank you um, so much. I feel like we are just beginning in our quest to close down this gladiator school. We see that the juvenile justice system is like quicksand and <coughs> CYA is way down deep. Um, 90%, almost 90% youth of color in this, in this gladiator school. When we went up to the Capitol with our closed CYA prisons t-shirts in Sacramento, people laughed and snickered and sneered and told us that'll never happen. But we kept going, we kept striving, and we currently have a bill 
to close down the California Youth Authority Youth Prison in the state legislature. And the reason why we've been successful is because we've organized families, we've organized those folks who have been locked out of the political process to actually exercise their power and bring that message to, to legislators. And we've held on to the belief that we can make a difference because what we're told so often is things are bad now and the only way they can get is worse. And if you try to make a change and if you try to tinker with this system, the only thing that can happen is that it can get worse. And families and youth are refusing to accept that false choice. Um, we want to close down the California Youth Authority Youth Prisons. People see that on the front of the T-shirt, but often forget that on the back of the T-shirt it says we want to open youth opportunities as well. We want to invest in programs um, that actually work. And that $530 million budget that the Division of Juvenile Justice is currently getting can be used towards things that actually uplift our communities. So we will win justice and opportunity for youth. We deeply appreciate the honor of receiving this award from the San Francisco Public Defenders who have been holding it down. We stand behind their work. We stand behind the work of the panelists. I'm deeply honored to be um, amongst a, a group of people who, who again give a damn and we will keep winning. Thank you. I'll just read the uh, plaque. It, it reads, the San Francisco Public Defender's Office honors books, not bars, for improving the lives of youth and families within the juvenile justice system. It's primarily because of books, not bars, that we are even considering the fact of closing down the eight facilities. As you may have heard last week, DeWitt Nelson uh, was announced to be the first uh, closure. And we're, we're very, and it's because of books, not bars. Now I'm very pleased and excited to honor my sister, Sue Burrell. Come up. For those in the defense bar, Sue Burrell is truly an institution. She is a resource. She is a woman warrior. She is a diva. And I see that her family is here. I, thank you for sharing Sue with us. Um, Sue was a public defender for 10 years, and um, I don't know if there's any defenders here, but she actually um, authored the first dog book out of uh, Los Angeles County Public Defender's Office, and that's the Bible for defense attorneys. Um, she has worked vigorously in fighting the abuses that exist in CYA, now DJJ. Um, she has filed three lawsuits against uh, DJJ. The first one involved ensuring that students who had special ed um, issues received special education because they were sitting in the uh, cages for hours and hours and not receiving any edu education. Um, Sue also brought a lawsuit to ensure that there were mental health services for the young people who are imprisoned in DJJ. And her current lawsuit, um, which will really help in reducing the population at DJJ, is to ensure that there be lawyers for parole at, uh, revocation hearings for youth. There are lawyers allowed for adults, 
but it is not allowed for youth. I don't understand that. Um, and one of the more difficult issues that Sue's had to deal with, and, and this really shows you what you have to deal with when you're dealing with institutions and administration. Sue also deals with um, conditions uh, in detention facilities throughout California. And it had come to her attention that young people were receiving uh, used underwear that was soiled and stained. And, and you know, we're spending what? $90,000 per child, up to 200000 by next year in DJJ, and yet we can't have clean underwear. Well, there's been some advances thanks to Sue's efforts. Now, now the young people are receiving underwear that is not stained. So she's still working tirelessly to ensure that those, that are, those young people in the facility do receive clean, new underwear. But more than that, I just want to thank Sue for her years and years of work. She has been such a resource to everybody in the system in trying to fight the big policy issues, in trying to provide oversight over the California Youth Authority, in trying to eliminate the cages that still exist in DJJ. So, um, Sue, I, I, I think we'd like to hear from Sue now. Thank you very much, Patty and Jeff, um, and all of you. I, I have to say, I, I had my little prepared speech, and after sitting here this morning, I just feel so incredibly in awe of the people in this room, the life experiences of people in this room, the work you're doing, the total commitment and passion that everyone that has spoken this morning has shared with us. And um, I feel, in a way, I feel funny being the one standing up here accepting an award because I think we all deserve an award. My path to being a, a lawyer doing this kind of work was sort of circuitous. My first job out of um, UCLA was working at the Sears Roebuck catalog counter, and I made my way through a number of other jobs, and um, actually my aptitude test when I was in high school had said that I should be a forest ranger. Um, <laughs> but um, I, at the same time, I always had a sense of, um, of fairness, and it bothered me when I would hear about people being subjected to bad treatment or what seemed to me to be unequal treatment under the law. And so when I found out that you could become a lawyer and have as your job the job of speaking out against the things that make you mad, that seemed like just the right job for me. And I, I went to night law school. I um, worked during the day. I amassed a huge amount of credit card debt. Uh, but I became a lawyer, and I've never looked back. It's, I've always been proud to be a part of this profession, and I spent the first 10 years of my profession as a public defender in Los Angeles. So um, uh, I, I feel very happy to be a part of this defender community up, up here in the Bay Area. The work that we do, um, we focused a lot on what is yet to do, but there have been a lot of successes in the time that I've been doing it, and some of them we don't really think about as successes because they're just tiny little steps, improving some kind of one little condition in juvenile hall, 
making sure that one young person gets their high school diploma making sure that someone in juvenile hall gets to see a doctor or a counselor when they need to sometimes our successes have consisted of just putting our finger in the dike against some horrible law that is about to pass or 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 some initiative that's coming out against us we don't always win I I've been the lone advocate member on innumerable task forces that didn't do what we wanted them to do we've lost a lot of the initiatives like the DNA initiative and before that prop 21 but I think we have to appreciate the successes that we do have and what Zachary was saying about where we are at this point in time in relation to DJJ formerly the Youth Authority it's pretty astounding just a few years ago there were 10,000 youth that are there and now we have fewer than 2,500 out of to for us in in this day and age to hear out of the mouth of a Republican governor that he wants to close institutions and move money to the counties so the counties can provide the kinds of services young people need that's an amazing success we have to make sure it happens but I have no doubt that some of that is going to happen this year I feel in my work that I could not have done a lot of what what I've been able to accomplish without help and some of my helpers are here today so please indulge me for a moment first of all standing across the back wall are my colleagues at youth law center my Deborah Escobedo who is one of the world's great education experts my secretary for the past 20 years Robin Bishop Mirzad Kajanuri who is our office manager at youth law center and Mamie Yee who has dug me out of all kinds of messes as the youth law center paralegal and helping us to get our work organized kind of in the middle of the auditorium is my dear husband Donald who has read has read many many legal briefs and has heard more practice arguments than anyone should have to bear and my brother and sister-in-law Mike and Nancy Kirsten who are themselves incredibly compassionate good people and who have listened to my rantings about the juvenile justice system for many many years but I also would like to acknowledge that the work that Youth Law Center does is really dependent on the many other agencies and individuals many of whom are represented in this room books not bars of course why tech legal services for children the Pacific News Service many many of the organizations that have been represented here today and many that I probably won't remember to acknowledge just now all of this work I think has I think the reason we're seeing results right now is because of the synergy of all of our work but also in the past few years the defender community has become much more involved in and has made an enormous contribution that the work in the work that's been going on and the San Francisco Public Defender's Office is a leader in this work Jeff Adachi who runs one of the biggest defender organizations in the entire country has provided outstanding leadership in these issues and I know a number of the speakers have have recognized that this morning but he still has all of the passion and compassion and all his legal skills from when that made him a great trial lawyer and just maybe a little over a year ago he actually took on an individual case of a young man who was facing a very unfair 
parole revocation case in DJJ, and he actually represented that young man. They didn't even want him to have a lawyer. Patty Lee, you may or may not know, is a national leader in the juvenile defense community. She's been involved in groundbreaking work on behalf of Asian and Pacific API youth on adolescent development. She was instrumental in starting the Pacific Juvenile Defender Center, which has created a whole community of contact among us who are doing this work in the community. And she presides over what I think is probably the best juvenile defender office in the country, working on the model that you need not just a lawyer to go into court with you, but also someone who can help make sure you get placed in the right place or you get the services you need so you don't have to be placed, that you get educational services, and that once your court disposition is over, that they don't put away your file. They stay in contact and make sure that you're actually getting the services you're supposed to get in the community. This is just something that's never happened anywhere else before, and I think they are providing inspiration to many people in the state and around the country in this work. I am very honored to receive this award today, and I will treasure it for a long, long time. I know that there are many challenges facing us. There's probably a lot more to accomplish than we've already accomplished, but I feel very happy to be among you in this community, and I will keep this happy occasion with me as I go forward. And I know this afternoon that there's going to be a panel on youth-led initiatives, so I would like to say to those of you who might think that you might like to be a juvenile advocate, as Sean was talking about, and many people on the panels this morning, starting from the ground up, I can say this about being a juvenile advocate. You won't become rich, but what you will get is you'll never be bored, there will always be really great issues to work on, and you'll always know that you're on the right side. Thank you very much. We're very honored to present this plaque to Sue Burrell. It says the San Francisco Public Defender's Office honors Sue Burrell for her steadfast commitment and advocacy for youth within the juvenile justice system. Congratulations, Sue. Thank you. A spot, and it's by Jeffrey Greer. This is merely a preview, so this is a first, and we're really excited to preview this performance. The spot will actually start on June 1st, 2nd, 8th, 9th, and 15th at 8 p.m. at the St. Boniface Church Theater at 175 Golden Gate Avenue downstairs. People in recovery are urged to attend. The play deals with violence, addiction, black flight from San Francisco, and relationships. No one will be turned away for lack of funds. So let's give it up for the spot and Jeffrey Greer. Thank you. I'm going to check our mic. Can you hear me? All right. Well, hopefully more people come in, and I want you to take a look at this production that we're doing. As was said, well, they're supposed to have it up on the.
Yeah, it's supposed to be up on the thing. But basically, this production has been ongoing. Uh, we urge all people who are in recovery, providers in the system, out of the system, familiar with the system, to come see this piece in its entirety. Uh, what we'll do is present a little uh, snippet for you. We'd love to hear your reaction. And without any further ado, a scene from the spot known as The Joint. Actors, play on. Yeah, you guys need to turn the lights down if you can. Dim them or something. Oh, man. Wiz, what you doing, man? Yeah, man, just another night in this drama cell. I heard we that. We got to finish our uh, daily or nightly or whatever we call it up in here, domino game. We're going to shake them bones, man. Let's get started. Yeah, man, come on. Number nine. Woo! Break it off. Break it off. Go ahead. I can't count that high, baby. It's on you. Come oh, on, man, now. it's all right. Don't it's play. all right, man. Come on, man. What's this? A double head or something, man? Man, go on, play, man. What's going on? Somebody behind me? What's happening? Man, have a seat, man. Have uh, a seat, man. Belongs to the state. Yeah. What's wrong with you? Where you from, man? man I'm from Hunters Point, man. Hunters Point! Oh! Man, they love them in Hunters Point up in here. Hey, man. Mm -mm. Yeah, buddy, they got a lot to say about you, partner. You know, if I was you, man, I would go ahead and uh, take care of my little business, cover my back, you know. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are thinking about getting married up in here. How old are you? Hmm. Huh? How old are you? Nineteen. Nineteen. Whoa. Well, what you smell, man? What you smell? This youngster smell like carnation milk. Oh, come on, Wiz. Come on now. Come on. Don't do it like that. Oh, oh. Well, listen here, man. Uh, when the last time you seen your girl, man? Man, I, I, I'm going to go take a shower. Wiz, Wiz, go on, lace, lace him up, man. Tighten him up. You know, get his mind right. All right? Don't Don't better listen. That. Better listen to that knowledge. Got a lot of it. Look, youngster. We just fucking with you, man. Because we know you don't even know the rules to the game. And you ain't never been up in this penitentiary before. So don't come up in here acting like you do. Oh, when I look at you, youngster. <laughs> Whew. You make me think about uh, all them times I ain't been there for my own children, man. And you make me think about all the times I ain't even been there for not only you, but damn near all them kids from the community that I'm from. And it just brings, you know, it kind of like sad my heart, you know, because, you know, I ain't been no father for, for my children. I used dope in front of you. I sold dope in front of you. And the only thing that you ever have is possible a damn TV to replace a parent. On this day, youngster, and I hope my children somewhere can hear this. I got to apologize to you. And my uh, 
Grandma always told me that apology without action don't mean nothing. So I'm going to give you three things that you can do while you're up in here so you can go on back home and be with your kids. And uh, that's about who you know, how much money you got on your books, and as quiet as it's kept, don't never tell nobody about how much time you got. Because between me and you, I've got 180 years to do up in this bench. And there's a whole lot of them up in here, just like me, that don't care, don't give a fuck. So I don't want you to get caught up in that. But I'm going to tell you something else, young. You know what? I ain't always been lying. Thief, don't be murder. Somebody, uh, husband, thought I was a father. My daughter, I never forget, it was a Sunday morning, and she was going to the store for a bomb. You know that liquor store over there on 3rd Nuka? Yeah. Where them cats be hanging out with the white tees on and the sagging pants? That, that one right there. And just as she was leaving the store, some little Don't wind up in no place like this. Because 
One thing I tell you, whatever it is you got to be handled up in here, I'm going to handle Because the only thing they can give you is just a little bit more time. Hey, man, what's happening, Reeves? Huh? You laced him up? Huh? You laced him up? Tell him I laced you, youngster. Go on, tell that man I laced you. Did you kick the game in? What the hell is wrong with you, man? It's okay? Tell him, man. Yeah, he did? So you ready, huh? You ready? Yeah, yeah, man, yeah, yeah. We gonna roll, man. We gonna roll, boy. We gonna pick up some, pick up some dominoes, partner. Ladies and gentlemen, that's an excerpt from the spot known as The Joint. First of all, because uh, we are an inclusive and interactive uh, drama piece and a therapeutic theater piece, we want to acknowledge this youngster, J.D., who walked up seven minutes ago. <laughs> seven minutes ago, this brother walked up and decided he would be a part of this. So I want you to acknowledge him. Make sure that you give him a hand for his participation, his inclusion, and his involvement. Brother Cedric Akbar, he is the executive director for Positive Directions out there on, uh, on 3rd Street. <laughs> 3rd and Newcomb. <laughs> Uh, he's an integral part of uh, San Francisco Recovery Theater, and we have a uh, paired relationship so that we can always offer services coming and going. My name is Jeffrey Greer. I am the uh, Crisis Intervention Director for San Francisco Recovery Theater, a standalone project. We are grassroots. We're supported by you and for you, and I do have some soap for you to buy. Uh, you know, we're having a production, as is stated. Uh, I wish they'd put it up on the thing here, but uh, we'll Sorry, be... Flyers here. Okay, we got flyers. Um, but we'll be at St. Boniface Church, which is right down there, 175 Golden Gate. We're starting on January 1st, January 2nd. We'll be there the 8th and the 9th, and then the 15th. If we get enough support from uh, people, we will do a matinee. Uh, but keep a lookout for us. You can check us out, www.sfrecoverytheater.org. And I want to thank you very much for having us. Please keep your eyes out for San Francisco Recovery Theater. Oh, and J.D., <laughs> All right, I'd like to in introduce Yvette Robles, who is a director for Bayview Magic, and I would like to have a big hand for our youth panelists here. All right, good afternoon. Thank you for being here. So we're going to start off by asking our panelists to please introduce yourselves, your organization, and the work you do. So let's go ahead and start off with Ms. Cassandra. Hello. Okay. My name is Cassandra James. Um, I'm a part of the San Francisco Youth Commission. And basically what we do over there is like policy work, anything that has uh, – Anything the city has to do with youth has to come through our commission, and we have the power to change legislation or to uh, lobby uh, supervisors in order for that to change. Thank you. Hi, I'm Sean Tanner. I am the MITE coordinator at YCD, which is Young Community Developers. I run a work for the Mayor's Youth Education Employment Program. I help keep kids out the streets and develop them how to work in the work field. Hello, good afternoon. My name is Marlene Sanchez, and I'm the executive director of the Center for Young Women's Development. I'd just like to say thank you um, to Patty for working so hard to get me out of jail when I was a youth. Um, I'm not a youth anymore, uh, so I'm here um, 
as somebody who works with young people and um, for an organization who is led by young people. Good afternoon. My name is Jose Luis Pavon. I'm with uh, Coleman Advocates for Children and Youth and Youth Making a Change, which is a project of Coleman Advocates. We work to defend the, the rights and interests of, of working uh, youth and families here in San Francisco, and I coordinate the youth leadership arm of Coleman, and uh, we're currently fighting to preserve the next generation of, of working class and low-income families with, and to defend their right to live here in San Francisco. That's what we're doing. Hi, my name is Peter Yim. I'm part of an organization called Chalk and YFY. Chalk, a community in harmony advocating for learning and kids, and YFY, Youth Funding Youth Ideas. Um, I'm going to play both roles of introducing Chalk and YFY. Um, Chalk is a, basically a program that serves at-risk youth. Our um, mission is to serve, you know, the at-risk youth and develop them with job skills that they could, um, right after training, they could apply for different type of jobs. We believe that, you know, the youth could do tasks that adults can do if you give them the time and training. And um, with CHALK, we have um, Youth Funding Youth Ideas, which I'm part of that I'm going to speak about in a second. Youth Line, which is a phone line, a peer-to-peer -peer phone line between the hours of 12 to 10, where anyone could call in and be like, when's the next movie timing? Um, you know, I, I want to tell you a little bit about my mama drama or whatever, or, you, you know, or, I'm a Virgo. What is today? So, so like stuff like that, that's youth on what we do. And um, about Wi-Fi, um, Wi-Fi is a youth-led program that, you know, um, that, re that got funded by um, DCYF through the 3% Youth Initiative Fund that was, the initiative was passed four years ago and basically allows us to fund youth up to $10,000 between the ages of 13 to 17 with a civically engaged idea. Um, for example, if you guys seen Super Sick With It, they're like a dance crew that really tried to promote positive message by geeking, going hyphy, you know, um, and that's what they do. And we funded them. We also fund um, Youth Make Media, my personal projects, who um, started at Lincoln, um, which basically believed that through videos they could promote um, promote condom use, promote safe sex, understanding um, peer pressure. And what I like about that project is that Youth Make Media was part of peer resources, and after through their successes, they went back, and now many different high schools are trying access for funds for pilots in other schools because it proved be successful. 
I know that I talked the most. I'm sorry, but those are my problems. Thank you. Let's thank all our panelists for being here today. So the topic of our panel discussion is youth-led initiatives and youth-led programming, as well as leadership development and empowerment. So all of our panelists have touched, will touch on this um, to varying degrees. So the, question, the first question for our panelists is, how have youth-led programming initiatives impacted your life? Talk about where you were at in your life prior to engaging in youth-led programming. Um, it impacted my life. Through, I first started off with GirlSource. I don't know if anybody knows what GirlSource is. It's like a um, nonprofit for girls ages 14 to 18 for low-income girls to teach you, like, what does it teach you? Like, uh, technology, whatever, and how to, like, promote your voice, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like um, I started when I was 16. Right now I'm 19. And when I first entered that program, I was, like, still in high school, and it was, like, I really wasn't caring about, like, what was going on in the community. It was all about, like, myself, and going through GirlSource, it, like, helped me develop, like, my voice or my skills, whatever, and it helped me, it was, like, youth-led because, like, they taught us what to do, and then they let us do what we could do because, like, we know, like, the kids our age and et cetera, so I think that's how it impacted me. Great. Any other panelists want to share their experience? Sure. We could start with Marlene and then move on to Peter. Okay, so uh, so I started with the organization that I met at 15 years old, and it was key individuals who really believed that if I can survive on the streets or if I can be on the streets, that there are certain transferable skills that I can then bring into the organization, and it was with that thinking that I um, came to the organization that I'm at right now. And it was, you know, key people in my life, elders and, and other people in my life who said, you know, you can do this and you can also run an organization. And it was a really, I, I feel like, really intentional. Like, I came to the organizations not looking to be developed or not looking to be a leader, but because I needed um, money and they were going to pay me. So I was like, hey, I can do that. You know, and so, but it was, that was kind of the plug that brought me into the organization. And I feel like the leadership development that happened there, even though that at the time when I was 15, I didn't know that that's what was happening. I feel like there was key people who were really intentional and who saw something um, in me that at the time I didn't see in myself. And so there was, you know, key things that, that happened from, um, you know, having workshops that really raised my political awareness around what things were going on in my community, that it wasn't just enough to give me a job, that there was, you know, some political education that happened in my life that was, that kind of clicked for me at, maybe it was, you know, two years, three years down the line, and that it was people who said that even though she keeps messing up, we're going to st stick by her side, that even though, you know, Patty kept defending me over and over. <laughs> she was like, I still believe in her, that that there was people who were going to, when I fell, were still going to be there um, when I fell to get back up. And so that's how I got involved in youth programs is that I was in a lot of programs. I've been through, I was, you know, through a lot of programs, and I'm not going to mention any names, and I got kicked out of a lot of them. Um, but there was th there was this particular organization that said that even though you keep messing up, we're going to still have the doors open for you. And I feel like that's what made it to 
like those were the key elements that made it so that I'm still there today. So thank you to all those people who didn't lose hope, even when I had lost it as a young person. So. Peter, and I want to remind our panelists, we're on the timeline. <laughs> I'm going to make this an hour-long speech. <laughs> um, and really take my time. Um, so I came to Chuck when I was 14 years old with cerebral palsy. And at that time, I was like kind of in a new world situation really like oh my gosh I'm a teen and it's like I did not know how to communicate improperly just because it was hard growing up being teased and you know it's really traumatizing for a disability student but I went to this went to chalk you know just a lot of it was like it's gonna be a job ten dollars an hour why not apply you know, but also what I got out of it is basically able to sit up here calmly and present my organization to be like this, how it developed me to the way I am today. And, you know, I'm still a teen. I'm only 17, but I'm still struggling. But I believe ch chalk, you know, is a key step and key foundation in my development to, you know, go out to the world and be like, hey, I got cerebral palsy, so what? You're not going to make it against me, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. so. Does anyone else want to share their experience? Um, I share. Um, I can say the best support and the best thing that happened for me was probably who gets the most criticism, the juvenile justice system, actually. It was my probation officer who always pushed me, Heidi Isaac. My judge, Miss um, Catherine Feinstein, who so always get on me, Sean, you're a leader. Ben Batista, straightforward club. Kim Saloni, my case manager, for the last five, six years, always pushed me and pushed me and said, hey, Sean, there's something else out there for you. And I'm like, there's nothing going on, there's nothing going on, but for some reason they always come to court and tell them how great I'm doing. I said, me? I'm just handling my own business. Like, no, there's something else in you. And one person, Jack from Omega, Jack walked up and told me, Sean, eagles do not fly with pigeons. Choose your destiny. So I have to thank the city for the reason why I'm up here right now, be able to speak back to you guys. Thank you. Okay. The second question is, what are the critical components that make up youth-led programming? I'll say it again. What are the critical components that make up youth-led programming? Jose Luis. Um, I'll, give a, I'll give an example of uh, something Warren McTaylor a, a couple years ago. We, we were in a, in a campaign uh, identification process trying to figure out what were priorities for youth. We did surveys and focus groups on young people. And young people identified high school bathrooms as a big issue. And so we, uh, 
you know, the staff were like, oh, well, that's not the most, you know, glorious, big political issue to take on. But okay, if, they, if that's what you guys want to do. And they're like, yeah, you know, I can't think when I'm in class because I got to pee or I got a number two and there's it's dirty on the seat, you know, and I can't. And so the young people engaged in the research. Right. So it wasn't necessarily adult staff going out there. So they identified they made the decision to identify the issue. They engaged in the research and sat down with policymakers. We found out that the state had been cutting the, the janitor's budget in half since 1978, Prop 13. We found out there's a bunch of mismanagement, right? And um, we had to pressure the San Francisco superintendent, Arlene Ackerman, into a meeting. Um, the young people went down in a delegation down to the school board office to get the superintendent to call us back because she wouldn't call us. And when she did finally decide to start having communication and dialogue with us, I had a 17-year-old girl uh, who was going to International Studies Academy. Her name was Angela Godoy. I told the superintendent's office to call her on her cell phone. So 17-year-old Angela Godoy was getting phone calls from Superintendent Ackerman's staff people to arrange meetings and to discuss the implementation of improving bathroom conditions in San Francisco high schools. And so. We got our demand met. We, we demanded that the school district uh, purchase toilet seat covers. I know it sounds kind of silly, but the school district was not providing paper toilet seat covers, even though the state mandates it. Um, and about a year, year and a half ago, the kids saw toilet seat covers get installed in San Francisco bathrooms, uh, in San Francisco public high school bathrooms across the city. And uh, they were just jumping up and down, calling me the day the toilet seat covers went in. Say, oh my God, the reason I got toilet I can, I can sit down, I can pee. So that's, from our perspective, that's that's youth led, that's youth led organizing. Excellent. Can I? I think when when we learn about like youth development principles and one of the principles is like you know caring adults and I don't mean to offend anybody who's like a diehard youth development like who diehard for the principles because there's principles in that that we embrace but I think that one of the things that's missing in those principles is that peer to peer role model or that youth um, led and we believe that if you have if success is something that's right in front of you then it's doable like because if we keep seeing you know these adults who are like well they they did this but if you see somebody who looks just like you is your same age been there done that you know is you know leading programs or is doing something then you can look at that person and be like damn i could be just like that i can do just what he did or i can do what she did and i think that we have to remember that that peer-to-peer -peer, um, model is also really important to see youth leaders um, in the organizations and that we don't just i think the other key thing is to not just develop young people to lead programs but develop them to lead all aspects of the organization that is not just okay to say well here's some skills facilitate a group but like no this is how like you write grants this is how you get money this is how you understand the financial management of the organization like there is these other components to like running a program that young people also need to be involved in um, that's really empowering to know I think that I was you know really empowered to get certain skills but when people took the time to say like no this is what a budget actually looks like and you actually have the power to really determine what's going to go on this budget then that was a whole nother piece a whole nother understanding of how nonprofits work that I was like wow why did they take so why why I didn't know this 
why well, I didn't know that I can, you know, get money this way, or why well, I didn't know all the other um, components of, of the organization. So I think involving young people in all aspects of the organization and letting them know that that they can lead, that they can lead not just programs but the organization. Oh, I thought you were giving me a note. Um, Yes, also, I always feel that a big a part of the youth, they have to see people who have done it themselves. Like, I'm going to give an example. I didn't, this is none, this is all new to me. I didn't see the light till I was maybe 18, 19 years old. So when my kids come to the office with all their problems and issues, I clap it up from the jump. I'm like, hey, you already made that step. you already in the game. They'll be like, how do you know? You have an office job. You're the coordinator. I'm like, I never went. To, I had problems in school my whole life. I never had a stable home. And they look at you and, you, and y'all share the same stories. They start believing. Myself as a youngster, I couldn't listen to nobody that was three times my age talking a different experience. So I feel I owe this to my neighborhood. I call it hood restitution. I know in my time I took a lot from my neighborhood. Now I make sure I go out and give it back to the kids. Next question is, what are some common misconceptions about youth-led programming and initiatives? Um, some people feel if you've done it forever, you're super skilled at it, and that's the way it's always going to be. Lots of times things change. Things change every day and every time. And so once someone has held it down for so long, you must pass the torch. There's a lot of young energy out there. There's a lot of untapped energy that needs to be tapped on, and soon as you can show um, another person that they have that energy and that power to lead themselves, you'll see a lot of stuff going on differently. That's how I feel personally. Mm -hmm. Peter? Next. Two words, micromanaging. <laughs> <laughs> That's the biggest misconception. Um, you see a lot of youth-led programming, you know, feeling for a new idea, something to do, like WiMAC. WiMAC, you know, their idea was to, you know, get toilet seat covers. That's, you know, stepping the game up and really bringing the youth idea out there. And, you know, a lot of times there's other organizations who, you know, control the youth. A, youth A, do this, youth B, get me coffee, youth C, you're about to present, let me prep you for two hours, and you're going to speak for ten minutes. Thank you. So it's really, that's the biggest misconception, micromanaging. Um, I believe a misconception is that, like, the youth work for adults instead of the adults work for youth and youth-led initiatives, like at the Youth Commission, like the adults there, like Rachel, Kevin, and Diana, they are my staff. I'm not their staff. So whatever I need on something or whatever I need to, like, find statistics, facts, I'm not trying to sound, like, egotistic or anything, so please don't. Um, but I go to them to because they're paid to do that. I'm not paid to uh, go look up st stats, facts, and et cetera. That's what their job is, and their job is to help me push an initiative through if, like, that's what I need to do. Any other comments on misconceptions around youth-led programming? 
How about um, misconceptions around youth-led programming with respect to whether or not youth can actually accomplish the projects or the goals that they set out to accomplish? Like what, if you could say anything to adults who are interested in engaging in youth-led programming, I guess what would, what would you want to communicate to them about their youth who are getting together and putting together an idea and supporting them? Don't be afraid to challenge them. Um, I don't feel a lot of youth are challenged these days. Um, you must challenge them and expect them and expect yourself to raise a status bar to keep them up to them challenges. And if you come together to make sure that they're all striving to another level they never thought was there, collectively you'll see a whole lot of stuff simply change. And I take as, like my kids, if I can get them just to pick up a book, like last week, or now, sorry about that, a week before, one of my kids went to the library and told me, to them, they say, hey, Sean went to the library. They don't know how big that is. So if we come together and tell them that, that there are dreams out there and goals that you can, that you can get, they'll go for it. Marlene? Um, let's see. I, I, one of the things that I wanted to say is around um, creating spaces for healing opportunities for young people. I believe that young people have more of the capacity than adults to really begin that healing process. We can. I think that we are sometimes as adults we get really comfortable where we are um, and dealing with our issues. I believe that some of us are wounded healers and we need to continue that healing process in order to really um, continue on our path um, that we're on. And it's been my experience that young people are really leading what it's truly, what, what that healing process is really about. Because when I see some of the folks from over there from the center say, what's up, you guys? Shout out. Um, like they are the ones that are teaching me about where I need to go. And that the moment that I think that I'm at a point where I know, like I really don't know because then I have them to really check me. Um, and so we have to really lead, let them lead us into these new ideas because, you know, when we get to the point where we're 30, 40, you know, it's harder for us to really change those old ways. And it's young people who are really uh, making those changes. And we have to create those spaces where we're also stepping down so that they can move in. Somebody stepped down and said, you know, and, and gave me a space to step in. And I know that my role is to do the same thing for somebody else. And so, but unless we step down and create those spaces, then like some folks will stay in those positions and retire in those positions. And sometimes these jobs, like we do have to step out and um, let them step in, so. Thank you. Um, absolutely, Jose Luis. Um, I think it, 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 it all boils down a lot to the expectation we put on young people. And I think one of the, one of the biggest challenges we face is, is the conception that the way things are in our society, in our country, in our city, that it's not going to change, that the violence is never going to end, hmm. right? But the truth is, is that when we look at the kids who are coming to, to juvenile hall, it's not the kids that are going to the private schools in Pacific Heights, right? Why? What's the bottom line? It's our public school kids, right? And the bottom line is that in Pacific Heights, they invest in the kids. In Pacific Heights, they'll sit there and, and look a first grader in the eye and say, you're going to Princeton, you're going to Yale, you're mm -hmm. going to be a lawyer, you are going to run the world. And they are dead serious when they tell them. And they expect out of that child. But in the public schools, they're pulling kids into the dean's office and telling them, you know what, you're garbage. You're never going to amount to nothing. And if that's the expectation that's communicated to the child, if, if 
the minimal amount of resources are invested into the children, then the outcome is our children are going to fail. So when we set expectations high, our young people succeed. When we prioritize investing our resources in the needs of young people, our young people succeed. I look my young people in the eye and I tell them, I want you to be the future Jeff Adachi. I want you to think about running for school board. I want you to think about being the mayor, the governor. Look at Los Angeles. The guy that's running the city in Los Angeles now, he used to be a lowrider in L.A. He used to be a public school kid, and he's out there running the show, holding those cops accountable that beat up the families on May 1st. You know, so a lot is possible if we put the expectation mm -hmm. up high for our young people. Thank you. <clears throat> Does youth-led programming initiatives work with our most vulnerable youth? Provide an example. I just got to say, I knew Marlene when she was still in high school, and she was scary. I was scared of her. <laughs> she was my friend, and I needed to keep it that way. And thank God somebody invested in her. <laughs> she was no joke. So, yes, answer the question. It works. <laughs> I think that we have to invest in, in, in you know, if I, one of the things... <laughs> It's funny, I'm trying to picture myself with like hella eyeliner and, oh God, it was off the hook. Anyways, uh, you know, when people ask me all the time, like, what was it that did it? I really truly believe that it was some of the, the, the political education and the critical consciousness that I had in my life that really made things click for me and that, if we create spaces for young people who know what it's like to be poor, they know what it's like, you know, they, they know what racism is, they know what capitalism is, they may not know how to articulate it, but if you create those spaces where folks can really kind of redirect their anger, and I, I was really angry as a young person, I went around beating everybody up, and you know, part of that anger was because, you know, I saw so many things that were wrong and I felt like I didn't have no power to fix it. Um, and some of what people did for me is create those spaces and those opportunities where I really got to create a, 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 a political consciousness for myself. Like, I remember sitting in juvenile hall and having somebody talk to me about the prison industrial complex, but they didn't come in and do a prison prison industrial complex 101. Like they were talking about prison labor. And as somebody who had a father currently in prison at the time, like get, I remember getting so angry learning that my dad was making 30 cents a day and, and, and getting so angry and relearning that like slavery wasn't over. And, 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 and then all of a sudden I wanted to go and put my anger when I got out towards something different instead of going around beating up girls who look just like me. All of a sudden, like I wanted to redirect that anger towards something different around, you know, making sure that I wasn't going to be um, another slave in the prison industrial complex, that I wasn't going to be making 30 cents uh, for a, a, a institution that was just profiting off of having us incarcerated. And so, I, yeah, so <laughs> that's it. Sean? I'm going to sum it up real quick. Um, I went to by public schools, a continuation school. My GPA throughout high school was probably about 1.67. Um, I stayed my whole teenage life in juvenile hall, but the same people who I announced earlier, now when I graduated from my junior, junior college with top honors, I played college basketball, and hard now I'm running the youth program. And it's like, 
So to go on and on and on, I think the system is pretty good. Peter, could you share with us some experiences, if you will, because Chalk works with vulnerable youth or at-risk youth on how folks come into where people are at when they first enter into the program and then after have gone through youth-led programming where they're at? Um, I could tell you that a lot of people who we hired right off the back, you get scared of them right in the <laughs> beginning. When they get hired, they're all high-risk. They're, um, we, when we hire, we hire, um, for talk staff on high-risk scale, um, one to five, five being the highest, five meaning that we're worried that they will get shot tonight, one to be like they're already participating in so many services, why do they need talk? And we focus on the high numbers, and we hire them, provide them training, and then when they come out, you know, people that were high-risk five, that was really to go off to any of the, you know, staff, got out of training, got the 80-hour training, because each child staff is mandated to get 80-hour training. They go from, you know, being, I'm going to hurt you, you know, if you step out of line with me, I, just watch out. You see me on the street, to, you know, really going to colleges like Stanford, you know, some go state, some go city, and it's like where, where you know, talk really provide them the tools and necessities to be like, you know, you were this before, now you got a training, now you got a job, what are you going to do the next step? And that's what we help them with at talk. Thank you. Can I just say one other thing? It's like, I just don't want us to mistake that it's really easy, that this work is really difficult. And so we got to, one, remember to continue to take care of ourselves, but also implement things in our within our organizations that are truly going to support young people to succeed. And it's not just like it's the skill building, but it's also creating emergency housing funds or things in within your organization. So if how do we retain young people who also are in really uh, bad living situations or create situations within our create things within our organization that are really going to support them because if we're saying that our goal is to work with, with the most vulnerable population that we know that it is going to be hard and nothing's going to be easy. And so I wake up every morning knowing like, God, I'm so tired, but I know that this is the work that I'm supposed to be doing and that it's not easy. And the moment I feel like it's easy, then we ain't doing something right, right? Like it's supposed to be difficult, but then how do we as an organization develop and implement things within our organizations to truly support that? So if a young person comes in and says, like, I'm homeless, do I say, go call this number? Like, do I say, you know, like here, do I put them through already a, a system that's going to kind of give them another number? Like, no, like we have to develop things within our organizations to truly support them, to, to keep them involved. So young women, yeah, at 14 who are coming in yeah, and have two kids um, or who, you know, are having, you know, really bad living situations. So we have like an emergency housing fund. We have an education reimbursement program to sometimes reimburse folks who say, you know, I haven't gone to school. It's not because, you know, yeah, like I haven't really thought of that, but I owe them money because I told them I was going to go. 
and I didn't, and so now I have to pay them. And so my thing that's preventing me to go back to school to city is like, uh, they sent me to collection. <laughs> okay, so how do we make sure we pay, you know, like create a system so they could pay that debt back and go back to school or whatever. But the other thing is that we have to compensate people for their time. If we're truly saying that youth are the experts, then why aren't we paying them as the experts? Why are we stipending them and giving them, um, I'm not saying you all, but there's a lot of programs who don't pay them for their time or pay them for their expertise. And so I think another way as adults, like if I do something, I want to be compensated for something I do. Um, and so youth should be compensated for their expertise as well. Thank you. <clears throat> Let me see here. How are we doing on time? Thank you. Okay, I can open it up. Okay, great. So I would like to ask right now for folks on the panel, is there anything around youth-led initiatives and youth programming that is a burning desire that you want to get out to help people understand more clearly how they can begin to implement maybe some youth-led initiatives and youth programming? Peter? Well, um, um, we talk works at a downtown office and oftentimes what I like to do is network. And so I met with this another grant organization up on the same building who has a youth program and, you know, one time we were in a meeting, 15 different funders all over the city who had so-called youth and youth peer-to-peer -peer programming, which didn't work, and they were frustrated on why did this not, why did this program not work? And I'm here to say today that youth-led programming is not something you slap onto your community-based organization. It's not like, okay, who wants youth-led programming? Uh, raise your hand, say I. No, it's not like that. It's <laughs> through the process of developmenting and understanding that you've got more issues than you, you probably you do, you know, and that's a real issue right there. And oftentimes people, adults, you know, they they don't understand. They don't understand peer pressure. They don't understand, um, you know, safe sex or just a lot of things that they don't understand. So my burning desire for youth ed programming all around the city is to first understand the youth, implement a program, then, you know, have it to work. If you, you know, do the steps backwards, it's going to drive you crazy. <laughs> Thank you. So at this time, let's thank our panelists. Thank you so very much for your wisdom. We're going to open up the floor right now for our audience to go ahead and ask questions of our panelists. I have a little more of a comment. Uh, I teach at City College and work with the Second Chance Program, which um, helps formerly incarcerated students stay in school, uh, get in school and stay in school. And um, one thing that I keep hearing over and over again, and Marlene, I heard you say something about you know money, and I think it's important that we continue to fight to have our programs funded. Um, our program at City College is continually stopped.
from moving forward because we don't have the money. And, uh, you know, we keep hearing it from the administration. We don't have the money to give you more and more and more and more. And I think, you know, no, none of us do this work because we want to get rich and none of us do this work because we think that it's going to profit us personally, I think. And um, however, if we don't have the money to continue to do the work, and if we don't fight to get that money to do the work, then where are we landing? And I think it's really important that the youth and the adults that we're fighting for realize that they're worth the money that the state is spending on them. And if we're spending $180,000 a year on one inmate in CYA, um, couldn't we spend, you know, 50000 in order to keep them out, you know, for one program? Would anybody like to respond to that? No, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's a, that's, that's a challenge that we all need to hold ourselves accountable to, and, and especially under difficult circumstances like where we're taking city contracts or when you're put in a position where it's not so easy to speak out. But the bottom line is, is that is that this, the the violence, the, the drug abuse, the, the ugly conditions that we're seeing is a symptom of poverty. And if we want to change that, we have to fight it. And where, in my opinion, where the poverty is coming from is that we have a, a basic issue with people in this world that don't know how to share. We live in one of the richest countries, in the richest country in the world, in, in one of the richest cities in the world. And I'm going to tell you what rich people's favorite sport is in San Francisco. And if you didn't know, it's evading taxes. Whoa! <laughs> you know what I mean? Whoa! Whoa, whoa! You know what I mean? Like... They know how to do it. They know how to do it really good. It's not that the money's not here. It's not at all that the money's not here. It's that people don't know how to share. You know, preschool, share, share money. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know what I mean? And but that's not happening. So when that doesn't happen, people need to act, people need to engage. People in, need to speak out in the political process. People need to fight that for that money because it, it we deserve human rights, and our young people deserve to get their needs met because we all pay taxes here. You know, so that's that's my point. And people are paying taxes too. And just to add something to that briefly, a way that we can begin that process is really by collaborating with one another, supporting one another. It starts by sharing with each other. So, you know, to really think about the work that we collectively do, where are their similarities, where are their gaps, and how could we then come together and champion programming, funding, et cetera. So that's a way that we could definitely start handling that. We have some more questions, though. Anyone have questions? Yeah, right here. Yes, um, sir. And speaking to that, I wanted to get some feedback from you guys about the coalition work that you end up doing so mm -hmm. that you, the work that has taught you about each other's communities and how they interact and, and how that kind of work itself has improved or increased uh, the kind of effectiveness that you've had. So like, co like, who have we worked with? I'm just trying to understand your question. Yeah. Latino community, what's going on in the black community? What are some of the similar issues as you meet other youth groups that are working around the city and those types of things? How has that kind of experience improved the work that you do or you've done in, in, in your work? Like with that, like my experience has been like good and bad because I like, uh, collaborated with like organizations that's like really down for the cause really helping like youth which don't end at 18 like extends up to 24 because I'm still struggling myself and like 
um, who's like really like really want to like help the youth out and actually like take that next step into like collaborating and sharing their ideas and stuff. And I also collaborated with organizations that's just like egotistic. That's like, okay, this is my organization. I don't know why you're coming up in here. I don't know what you want. And like, you're not, you don't, you don't even have a BA. So why are you even in my face? So it was like, I had like that good experience and that bad experience and like the good experience and with working with other like organizations because on the commission, I represent Bayview. And it was like with Bayview, like I represent Fillmore because that's the other black community in the city. And with that, I represent Mission because that's like all the colored communities within the city suffer like from the same issues. But like people don't want to see it because like, okay, you're black, you have your issues. Okay, you're Samoan, you have your, like, we all like have like the poverty or like the bad education. Like in those communities, that's where like the bad schools of like the district are, et cetera. So it was like, so it's like I take on like all of that with it, like with the other commissioners, as in like how we collaborate and et cetera, and how we move on. Like we work with Chalk like big because like they're like the outreach. They're all over the city, and it was like they have youth come to us and like <laughs> tell us what's going on and et cetera. And we also work with like Homie and like Be Magic and like uh, UP. So like we're just like trying to like move that forward. I think as adults we need to take again. Um, look at young people as role models for that coalition building because I think you know the older I get to I'm like god adults have way more issues coming together than young people do and sometimes it's the adults who are the barriers for the, that coalition um, building for young people so as an adult now I have to be really conscious about things that I'm doing or make sure that I'm not doing something that's going to prevent for further coalition building so thank you Peter and like for me, I I really like my job working at Wi-Fi because you we really encourage you that programming through you know civic engagement, and a lot of if we give the tools back to youth, you get to know the struggle, know the history, because a lot of people are unaware about all these different communities. A lot of people are unaware about, you know, the Chinatown struggle. There's a lot of SRO housing, 8 by 10 housing, where six, 6 to 8 people live, and a lot of times elderly die because fire hazards, and you don't see this on the newspaper, but you see it when you have a youth, you know, saying that they want to do this, they want to build a DVD saying that this is how we need to help it. And if we give the tools, because a lot of youth are programming, it's coming from the youth heart or the youth corazón. So when we give that tool, when we give that power, you know, that's how we learn. Because we, it's all about learning. If you don't learn and just build a barrier, you're not going to do nothing for a community. But if you learn from the youth, the adults, the elderly, you could really go go to a different place and be like, I know all of this information. What do you want me to do for this community? Um, addition to that, I love be collaborating with other communities, um, other organizations who are always in the neighborhood. Like, for example, United Players. I can call Rudy and say, Rudy, who's beefing in that neighborhood? That can prevent one of my kids from going and getting themselves in a situation. So I can say a great thing on the coalition and collaboration 
with other organizations, you get to box out a lot of issues from even erupting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? We have one last question. Okay. Peter, <clears throat> MJ, Bill Challen. It would be a fantastic unifying effort for all of you and your constituents to go into the records and find out why it is that in the recently passed bond issue for building up the San Francisco Community College District, new building, new construction, why is it that the laborers who did the work, the tradesmen, 85% of those laborers came out of Sacramento rather than here in San Francisco. Go find out why. I know why, but you need to go find out why that happened when there are laborers here in the city who didn't get the work. Thank you. Thank you. We have one last question over here, actually. I just, I just want to mention something. I, mean, I appreciate all the, what all you guys are doing. I'm encouraged by your presence in here and what you do in the community. Uh, recently, I went to Civil Center High to just basically, I was concerned about what's going on over there. And Civil Center High basically has, the middle school has about 45 kids over there, and the, the high school has like 90, between 90 and 150 kids over there going to school. And those are the people who are most at risk because of the fact that they've been shifting from school to school, being kicked out. Their parents gave up on them. The school gave up, district gave up on them, so they've been shuffling. Now, when I went and talked to, I did some survey, and I talked to the teachers, that eight teachers and one vice principal are on stress leave. Stress leave. They're, they're not at school because they are burned out, because they don't get the support, they don't get the funding, they don't get the appreciation, and the CBO organization, the dismantling over there. So when I, went, when I walked to the classroom, I saw one teacher with five kids in the classroom. The other two, three teachers were just sitting there. The classroom is empty. That's one o'clock in the afternoon. So now something wrong with that. So when we talk about youth initiatives, about coming together to help our youth, those are the youth most at risk. That they are the next step to go to YA, the, the prison industry complex. They're going to get locked up. So as youth commissioners and people who work in different programs, mm -hmm. I would like you guys to do some surveys with different schools, how, which school is most needed, how we as CBO, as case manager and outreach workers help those youth from getting what they need. So they don't get involved in the system. They don't get far into the system. So th that's what I have to say. Okay, so we have a couple of proposed projects here. I'd like to close this panel with ac actually asking Peter and Cassandra that there's some excellent news. They both got accepted to schools of their choice. Could you please share with us? Do I have to? Come on, Peter. Bring it. Do it. Well, I like San Francisco. No. I know. Um, I'm, I'm a tech-savvy person, so I decided to go to tech school. I'm going to Rochester Institute of Technology. Two hours. Congratulations, Peter. Two hours away from Niagara Falls in New York, so I'm going to be freezing. Negative. 20 degrees right now. <laughs> All right, Ms. Cassandra. Um, I got accepted to UC Berkeley, so I'll be going there next year. 
All right. So um, we're closing this panel, and um, I want to really thank everyone for their presence, for being here, for staying after lunch. I know it gets tiring. Really appreciate that. And I want to thank I, every I'm panel. I'm sorry, real quick. I'm sorry, real quick. Wi-Fi is hiring between the ages oh. of 14 through 17. So we got applications in the back. Or you could go online, www.chalk.org, get some applications, get your youth to fill it out, because we're paying $10 an hour. Okay, Ms. Cassandra, real quick. Also, the Youth Commission is now accepting applications for people 12 to 24 who wants to represent their district or anything on the Youth Commission. And also the Juvenile Advisory Council, uh, we're taking kids that used to be a part of like YGC to come back uh, into YGC and talk to other youth, whatever you will be getting paid, whatever. And Kevin, he has applications up in the air. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, he has applications for you. And Brother Thank Sean, thank you. And if you guys know any youth that cannot be talked to, supposedly cannot be changed, please send them to me. My name is Sean Tanner. You can find me at YCD. I'll be happy to give you my information so we can come together and make sure something will be positive about the situation. All right? All right, let's give a last round of applause for our panelists here. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you very much, Yvette. I just have a few comments. Uh, to close off uh, today, but first I wanted to thank all of you uh, for hanging in there today and for your patience, for your ideas, uh, your participation. And we look forward to uh, having you up uh, on stage at one of our, our future summits. The panel that you just heard was remarkable, it really was. And it really represents, I think, where we need to go in San Francisco and around the nation. That when we talk about youth justice in the purest sense of what it means, it is youth empowerment. Because if we can empower our youth, whether that's to lead, whether that's to bring justice to other youth, whether that's to you know, provide the resources that they need, or at least help to find the resources that they need, and with the guidance and support of adults, thereby achieve youth justice, that indeed should be the ultimate goal. It's not about justice as is defined by adults. It's not about justice as is defined by the juvenile justice system or by a judge or by a lawyer. But it's really about creating outcomes that are going to work and that are going to create productive lives for the next generation because indeed it's going to be the next generation that has a responsibility of either fixing it or not fixing it. You know, when we look at these three things, when we talk about youth justice, it's like a, a well. And now that well is dry. And we are pulling up little drops of justice, just droplets of water that are coming out in a thimble. And we are, we are, telling people, if you are lucky, you will get a drop of this water. And when we talk about youth justice, when we talk about educational justice, when we talk about health justice, any of these things, these are things that all children should have. For any of you, for any of you who have children, you know that that is what you not only want, but demand for your child. And it's got to be the same for all children. 
Now in San Francisco, we're talking about a very small population now, unfortunately, of children. Less than 115,000 children in a city of almost a million people, if you can imagine that. And within the juvenile justice system, we are talking about 1,400 youth. And it's our choice and it's our question that we put to ourselves, as my good friend Rudy Corpus says from United Players, do you want a gang leader or do you want a community leader? Because you're still talking about the same person. The question is whether or not you're going to give that potential leader the opportunity to lead. And so as we go forward this year, there are three things that we need to look at. One, we do need to focus on our schools. You know, we cannot do the work that we do, whether it's in juvenile justice or whether it's in community-based agencies in isolation from the schools. Because unless we have a strong partnership with the schools backed up with accountability, we will never, ever make the progress we need to make because unless we can have educated young people, they will not have the opportunity to go on to be the next CEO, the next lawyer, doctor, artist, whatever they choose. They will not have that opportunity. And so as we go forward, we must be determined to work in partnership with the school district. We looked at the numbers today. It shouldn't be once a year that we look at the number of kids who are being expelled. Is it any mystery to any of us that we see that 40% of the students who are being expelled from the public schools are African-Americans? And then we see that 40% of the young people being held at juvenile hall are African-American. Or that we see in terms of arrest for gang-related offenses that the majority of kids are kids of color. That is not a coincidence. And it is by design. And so what we need to do is change that design and fundamentally change that design. The way that we do that, and we saw that through the example of Book Not, Not Bars, and also Sue Burrell are two ways. One, we refuse to accept that reality ourselves and that we are resolved in our determination to fight that, but that we use the legal system to our advantage, that we advocate, whether it's advocating against the youth authority, whether it's advocating on behalf of an individual youth, like Marlene and her experience, we make sure that we are there and that we got your back. At the same time, we make sure that on a statewide level, on these issues, when it's, you know, this is a bill to close down the California Youth Authority, 1665. We need to get behind that, and we need to go up. If we make one trip up to Sacramento, that's one trip that we need to make because that's an important one. And if we can close down, that's almost like ending slavery in, in, the, in the United States. Not to say that slavery has been ended here, but it's, it's, it's a big step that we can take forward. When we're looking at gangs, again, it's not enough to say we're going to lock you up if we can prove that you're a member of a gang. We're going to make a case against you so we can lock you up and keep you from the rest of society. We are going to create an injunction so we keep you out of this neighborhood. Okay? All that's going to do is push the problem over or push it to the next generation. And what we need to do is to make sure that we are there, not only to say don't join a gang, but this is what we have to offer you. And let's not fool ourselves, gangs serve a purpose. And the purpose is, is to provide that surrogate love and family that many people don't have. 
And, you know, Luis Rodriguez, who I met recently, he's written a number of books. He's a, a former gang member himself. And now he's a professor. He wrote the book Always Running. And he also wrote the book Hearts and Hands. And he said something that was very meaningful to me. He said, you know what, as a society, we don't forgive our children. We don't give them the opportunity to grow up. You know, one time or two strikes or three strikes and you're out. And that's the end of the story. Not realizing that for all of us, no matter what kind of background you grew up, no matter with what kind of privileges you had, you made mistakes and you fell. And that's part of growing up. And that's part of becoming an adult. And that's part of the experience that we should expect of all young people and that we should encourage when they make mistakes that we are there to help them move to the next level, move to the next level, move to the next level. And it's sad because you see in our prisons hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young men and young women who made mistakes when they were 17 and 16 and 15 years old. And now they're doing life sentences. And you talk to these kids and you hear their stories and you see how they have changed. Not any different than many of us changed at some point when we decided that we learn from our mistakes, and we still make mistakes. And so from that, what we need to do is ensure that those opportunities are there, that that well is plentiful, and we will have that opportunity. When the state wakes up and realizes that they're throwing $530 million down the drain every year on a system that doesn't work and begins looking at how to spend that money, we need to be there, and we need to be there for all the right reasons and to do the right thing. You all have the well of expertise. I'm not talking about money, but your experience. And we're going to need that. And we're going to need to pull that together in the course of the next couple of years because it's coming very fast. If they close down the youth authorities, if they put the onus and burden on the counties, it's us that must step up to the plate. It was easy in the past, I think, to throw rocks at the youth authority. And now I think it's an opportunity that we have to assume that leadership ourselves. And we have to make sure that it's our youth uh, that leads that effort. So again, uh, I look forward to continuing to work with all of you uh, throughout the year. Thank you very much um, to all of you. This is going to be uh, televised on the San Francisco government channel. I want to thank uh, Michael uh, Freeman and his staff uh, for filming this event and Bill Calvinaro from the uh, San Francisco Library for providing us uh, with this venue. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next year.